Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss issues through the cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. I have had a busy week. I covered the yesterday's breakfast show for our wonderful Paul Brennan. So if you heard me there and you're tuning into Counterculture for the first time, welcome along. On this morning's show, I've got some very special guests from the UK's Helen Joyce, journalist and writer of the best-selling book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. We'll discuss the infiltrations and the dangers of trans ideology in our current culture and try to discern fact from fantasy. I then pop across the ditch to Sydney to chat with Tim Mitchell, one of the parents that founded Hartford College, a Catholic boys' school in the classical liberal arts tradition. Marty Gibson joins me for Media Matters to discuss our roundup of the legacy media stories of the week, including the feature that was in the Sunday Star Times I discussed briefly with Cam yesterday, and I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. It is a busy morning, but I do have time to sneak in a little bit of feedback from Counterculture last week, as well as the breakfast show yesterday. First up is from Nick. I saw this problem 10 years ago when I arrived in New Zealand, and he is referring to my interview with Denise Ritchie from Stop Demand. If you haven't caught that interview on replay, it is about the impacts of 20 years of decriminalisation and prostitution. It is very eye-opening and certainly I will put a disclaimer there there's a lot of pretty crunchy information but it is well worth a listen so from Nick I saw the problem 10 years ago when I arrived in New Zealand the roast busters was a good tell about how New Zealand culture and that first shocked me and then worried me I then contacted NZME and got even more worried when not one journalist nor broadcaster thought it was even a problem after many years of writing and talking to Leighton Smith the problem has still not been highlighted and yeah you're right Nick that's part of the reason I spoke to Denise Uh, she has been working 
on this issue tirelessly that entire time. From Lois, hi Marie, I did not get to listen to RCR very often, but I've listened to your chat with Catherine, that's Catherine Truscott, and very much enjoyed it. And yes, great to hear the other side. We Doing my best to listen more often. Thanks, Lois. Thanks, Lois. I appreciate that. From Anthony. Hi, Anthony. I recall you recently had a segment talking about how Māori electoral seats work and how it was a good strategic option for minor parties to utilise. We have since seen reports that Hana Tamaki Vision New Zealand will be standing for Tamaki Makaro and Donna Pokeri Phillips Outdoor and Freedoms Party is standing for Hauraki Waikato electorate. They are both under the Freedom NZ umbrella and with plans to fill all Māori seats. It would be great to hear from them on your show, further around the reasoning, past experience of the Māori seat rates and plans for their campaigns. That is a great suggestion, Anthony. I have got my fabulous Bex. She is like a sniffer dog. She's going to hunt those out, and I'll see if I can get, if not one, but both of those candidates on the show. And you're right, uh, the Māori electorate, those seats are ones that are often overlooked. And I did a piece in Politics Explained with Tane, that's over on Real Talk. They're often also very much maligned, but they're seats that shouldn't be. They are very dynamic. They change. They're more exciting than many general electorate seats. And there is a purpose there that I think they are quite misunderstood. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up with that chat I did with Tane, do go over and check that out on the replays. Uh, from yesterday's breakfast show, uh, RNZ is in no position to posit opinions on missile disinformation as they both disseminated untruths about speaking for women, including unresearched slanders of Miss Keen Mitchell about being a Nazi. And then there was the misrepresenting and the assaults of Albert Park by male activists who hold gender ideology beliefs. Keep media accountable. Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually from our news yesterday. Please note medical ethics are being challenged in best care of pregnant women and their unborn children. There is a push for testosterone use during pregnancy by women who want to be recognised as men despite harm. Uh, an article out today. Oh, I'll have to hunt that out. Ham is spot on re-national. Chris Bishop wanted to go door-to-door jabbing people with holding services above and beyond Labour's madness. And that was in referred uh, to talking to Cam yesterday in the news. And he was just saying, what would it have been like if Winston had gone into coalition with Bill English? And he sort of definitely posited it would be exactly pretty much what we had, but done more efficiently. Truth is frightening because when the evil of our society comes out, people felt guilty due to the ignorance of what was going on. Evil thrives because good people do nothing. That's Nick from Palmy. You know, no decision or no action is a decision and is an action. So inaction is not an excuse. I think you can't play Switzerland on many of the things that are plaguing our nation at the moment. I think, and it doesn't need to be something big. Part of the reason I took this job is I needed to allow myself a place where I could express some of the concerns that I have and use the skills that I've got to be able to do that. So courageous conversations. I'm a firm believer of a good old fashioned courageous conversation and it doesn't need to be on a street corner and it doesn't need to be showy. It might be just over a cup of tea with a workmate during Smoko or chatting with someone when you're standing in the line at the supermarket. But you know what? Sometimes pushing back and challenging a current normal narrative that in itself always helps. Everything, chip away, chip away, I say. 
from Linda and Danny Vick. Hi, Linda and Danny Vick. Hi, Marie. So good to hear your lovely mellow voice this morning. Thank you for stepping into Paul's slot while he was away. I'm so enjoying the opportunity to hear some of your excellent interviews. Great job, RCR team, and keep it up. Oh, sorry, there's one sneaky one more here. Thank you for your show on Monday, Marie. I follow you. Hubby follows Paul, Rodney, Pete, and now Cam. He has got to realise the depth and value of your interviews. Girls can do it. He was so impressed. Uh, cheers, Ollie. You're, thank you. Well, I'm glad I impressed your husband. Wait, but wait, there's more. Um, a non-man, WTF, you couldn't make this stuff up. Well, it wasn't stuff, but it was something else. And that was from Linda. Yeah, I know, Linda. Honestly, it is that, you know what, crazy out there sometimes. Uh, this is from Barbara and Phil. We don't do social media, but we really wanted to say we love your shows. They're absolutely excellent as well as being so informative. An absolute necessity for staying on top of things and helping each other out during these times. Bless you all. I hope you keep doing what you're doing and what you're doing is wonderful. I really mean it. Cheers, Barbara and Phil. Thanks, Barbara and Phil. Uh, love RCR and your shows. Just caught the last bit of your interview with the amazing Māori voice. Uh, what is her name, please? I feel I have met her at the Parliament Freedom Village. Uh, uh, that's from Drew Maria. It will either be Di Landy or Karina Shields. I'm picking it would have been Di Landy. Drew, that is who that would have been. So thank you so much for your feedback. 2057, of course, is the text number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. Last week, I read you a piece I'd written in 2021. I'd penned it the day after the vaccine mandates were announced. Auckland was still in lockdown. That was the barn in my analogy. And the anti-vax rhetoric was ramping up. I literally broke down and sobbed that fateful day, not only because I knew the implications that this decision would have for my family and me, but the societal tipping point that New Zealand was experiencing. And most Kiwis were just blindly marching towards it as our government spent millions and even billions of dollars sharply focusing them like the tip of a hypodermic needle. It broke my heart. So I thought it was time to revisit my Orwell animal farm analogy and check in and see how things are now looking down at Aotearoa Farm. As the cockerel crows at dawn on Aotearoa Farm, much appears as it was in the days before the sickness. The farm gate is now unlocked and visitors to and from the farmyard can freely come and go. All the animals appear to be going about their business. Even the chickens have begrudgingly returned from the back paddocks, but drenched discrimination is still occurring quietly and is never spoken about by the fat, lazy, compliant media sheep. There's an unsteady peace since the sudden departure of Napoleon Ardern, just after the days of summer feasting. Citing her energy for the farmyard was gone, seeking nourishment now in other pastures and farms. Fear not, Napoleon has left the farm in good hands. Chippy Pork was to be rewarded for his work in handling errant chickens and confining sickness to the barn, and now presides over Aotearoa Farm. But could this be temporary for our sausage roll-loving chippy? As tradition dictates, an election is afoot in the farmyard. This is an affair usually dominated by other factions of pigs in the outdoor styes of Aotearoa Farm. Davy Piglet, a much maligned thorn on Napoleon's side, has grown and gathered more pigs to his sty. Meanwhile, the sty next door, Oinky Lux, who was once in charge of inter-farmyard transportation, has now got his eye on the big house. 
However, his calls seem stymied by continually getting his trotters bogged down in muck and the sheep's utter glee at deleting his misfortune at every opportunity. Over in the kunikuni wallow, Utu has been planned. Envy at so many kunikuni currently residing in the big house in proximity to the barn by the grace of Napoleon and Nachippi. It's been realised that these kunikuni have only been serving their own interests, not the interests of all kunikuni kind. The cowboy hat-wearing Dave Titi and his handler, a shady kuni called Tama, who seems to live beyond his means in the shadow of both the barn and the big house, are now plotting to try and claim, not the farmhouse, but as much of Aotearoa farm for themselves. Kunikuni have a very special way of knowing that all other animals on the farm just simply don't understand. So much going on in the yards, barns and pastures of Aotearoa Farm, but according to the sheep and the pigs, frequent rule painting on the barn is quite normal. The rise of the unexpected sickness within the animals is not to worry about, and all animals should be content with their lot in life. Squealer Robinson has been fattening all the farms so heartily for so many years with his miraculous regenerating stores of grain and feed. There is a northern pasture in Aotearoa farm, one where many of the older animals and those bloody chickens were sent to graze. Feed is plentiful, the sun always shines, and it's just far enough away from the barn farmyard and the big house is not to annoy the pigs and the sheep as they go about their important work. Winnie Ben, the old donkey, was shifted up to the pasture after decades trotting the cobbles of the central farm. He was a friend of Farmer John before his departure and in his wake has made an unsettled alliance with Napoleon. This is a story for another day. Winnie Ben has lived a long time. He remembers Aotearoa farm when it was called Kiwi Farm and was the envy of farms everywhere. Animals lived in harmony. Even the pigs and sheep mixed happily with all other kiwis. Snouts, trotters, hooves, hair, paws and claws. Sows were sows, boars were boars, and everyone knew the difference. All worked merrily on kiwi farm. Life was much happier then. Winnie Ben has watched the changes on Aotearoa farm and he would say that God has given him a tail to keep the flies off, but that he would sooner have no tail and no flies. But the flies have grown so thick around the farmhouse and Winnie Ben's tail has begun to twitch again. If you want to find out more about what's happening at Aotearoa farm, you'll have to join me next week here on Counterculture. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my first guest this morning is journalist and writer of the best-selling book, Trans, Helen Joyce. Good morning and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, So great to have you here. The first question I have is, when did fantasy become fact? Because that's what it feels like in the world we're living in right now. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, the claims of what I call gender identity ideology in the book are fictional claims. Um, you can That's not an insult. That's just a fact that, you know, people do come in two sexes, but some people prefer to identify as not their sex. So that's a fiction. I reckon that this storm has been brewing for at least a century in trans ideology. In the book, I give some of the history and I talk about um, developments from the 1920s in Europe and trace that briefly forwards 
Um, I would say it accelerated then in the 1990s in campuses, especially in America, um, and then really took off post-2010 when identitarianism took over left-wing politics. So that's the idea that the most important thing about any of us is our identity characteristics. Um, you know, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're gay, straight, um, and whether what your gender identity is. And at that point, people start to want to identify as things. And it's boring to be, you know, cis, white, straight, especially male. And you identify then as trans or queer or non-binary and you create fictions about yourself and you expect everyone else to buy in. So that's mm -hmm. a very potted history. But that's my best attempt at an answer to a deceptively simple question. Identitarianism really has infected a lot of different uh, aspects of our lives. You know, it seems to be the one overriding sort of virus, really, isn't it? It's almost like a mind virus that's taking control. How do you think trans ended up becoming at the top of that identitarian totem? Because that seems to be the one identity and minority that seems to outweigh any of the others. How do you think that came about? Well, for historical reasons uh, in American culture, and of course, American culture is the global dominant culture, uh, you're not allowed to identify out of your race. In particular, you're not allowed to identify out of being white, because whiteness is seen as a, something rather like an original sin. It's something that if you're born white, you must spend your lifetime attempting to atone for. And if you could identify out of being white, you could identify out of being sinful. Um. But again, for sort of historical reasons, but much more recent to do with the way that academia developed, uh, thinking about what it meant to be male or female got caught up in what's called queer theory. And I'd love to give you a definition of queer theory, but I can't. It's basically a weird sort of amalgam where everything is turned upside down, categories are thought of as bad and oppressive, definitions are evil, um, and you know everything bad is good, basically. So you can identify out of your sex. And so, so that is very appealing to people who want to position themselves as victims. And we now live in a victimhood culture where to be a victim is to be a good thing. Uh, you can't identify into race categories, oppressed race categories, but you can identify into oppressed gender categories. And I think that makes it immensely appealing. Mm. It's also just kind of fashion, isn't it? It's the more modern thing to do. It's just, yeah. it's just the thing now. Yeah, well, it, it, um, place that you brought up fashion, because... I mean, you you do have quite an extensive history in your book. And from a fashion perspective, we are seeing this particularly pervade amongst our teenagers, especially amongst teenage girls. Is there an element of social contagion, do you believe, amongst that group? Currently? Oh, I believe it's hugely driven by social contagion. I mean, it's just not feasible or plausible that, and this is the case, before 2010, there were no papers about gender identity or gender dysphoria in girls, teenage girls, none. And now that's the cohort that dominates worldwide. Um, I think that a lot of this has been driven by, uh, you know, well-off, well-established and generally very well-regarded organisations that fought for um, black civil liberties and that fought for gay marriage. And they had run out of anything to do. So they seized the next thing to do. So I would put that at um, well, 2013 in the UK and 2015 in the US, where gay, when gay marriage uh, was ruled by the Supreme mm. Court, so went nationwide. And then, you know, what do you do if you run the ACLU or the HRC yeah. or the GLAAD? You've got to find another cause or else you yeah. pack up and all go home and wind up the organisation. 
So those people really seamlessly turned to the next thing, the next big thing. That's part of the fashion element of it. But at the same time, kids are just looking for the next big thing. Mm. And now, you know, they don't, they can't fight for um, civil liberties uh, on the basis of race or on the basis of sexuality anymore, because basically those are one. Obviously, there's still racism and homophobia. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they're not the big causes that they used to be for kids looking for a for a cause. Mm. So they go for gender identity instead. And then lastly, I would say that actually the idea that you aren't really your sex is an incredibly appealing idea. It doesn't tend to occur to people naturally because it's an incredibly stupid idea as well. But if it's put in your mind, it's like a seed that can grow because it is a problem growing up to be a human being with a sex like you have to transition from being a child into being a sexually mature adult. And that's a big task. It's big, you know, we we probably don't remember as adults how hard it is to navigate that as a teenager. And if someone says that you can opt out, you can be non-binary, or if the things that you don't like about yourself uh, can be ignored and forgotten because you are actually somebody of the opposite sex, or just in general that you can reinvent yourself, new name, new pronouns. Uh, it's bigotry to mention your life history. That's an incredibly appealing idea to any miserable kid. And that's really all kids at some times. Mm. So yeah, it's absolutely a social contagion. Being a teenager is really difficult. And I've spoken to educators who tell me that this has become so fashionable and so alluring for teens because it takes essentially very boring teens that are otherwise invisible and makes them celebrated. There's absolutely an element of that. Yeah. You hinted before to linguistics. And I want to talk a little bit about language because I think this has been part of this sort of identitarian type movement has been a hijacking of language. How have you seen that manifest in the trans community? Well, the thing about trans ideology or gender identity ideology is that it's entirely about language. You know, with race, it's not obvious that there are very clear categories of race, but there's something there. I mean, there, you know, skin colours do vary, ethnicities do vary, and people do have different um, histories in terms of where their families come from and originate. There's a there there. But when it comes to a trans identity, it's just a statement. It's just a declaration. There's no there there. It's just a linguistic thing. So they there or they them these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. You know, there isn't really a thing that you can say no, you are or you aren't trans. Like there are behaviours, you can take on the clothing or the hairstyles or whatever the opposite sex. And if you're a girl, you can get your breasts cut off or whatever. But basically the rule is that you're not allowed to cast doubt on someone else's state of gender identity. So it's an entirely linguistic movement. And the thing about that is that it turns it into something very authoritarian. Because the way that you assert your identity is by controlling other people's speech. So you say, this is my new name, my pronouns are they, them, my pronouns are he, him, whatever. And other people must then describe you that, or even though they can see perfectly well that you're not actually a sexless human being or you're not actually a man. And that, I think, is why the linguistic policing is so fierce in it, because they haven't got anything else. Yeah. It's the one thing that they need to clutch onto. And that censorship, though, I mean, we, there's been a lot of talk about free speech. And I mean, we're talking on platforms like this because these discussions are now taboo in the mainstream platform unless you are pro the ideology and pro all the other identitarian elements. What about self-censorship, though? I get this feeling, Douglas Murray calls it, it's time for the grown-ups to enter the conversation. Why aren't the grown-ups entering the conversation? 
Oh, I think so many reasons. I mean, one of them is that it's uh, it's dangerous. You know, a lot of people know very well that their jobs depend on not noticing that there's something very strange here. And because this censorship is so virulent, because it's so important, if you want to uh, assert a trans identity, it's so important not to allow other people to contradict it because then it all falls apart. But there's also the thing that, you know, I mean, I, I say this advisedly, it's unbelievably stupid, this ideology. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like here we are with all sorts of real issues to be thinking about. Like whatever your cause is, that cause is still there. We still need to worry about poverty and sickness. We haven't cured cancer. You know, we had a pandemic, all this stuff. There's actual things you could be thinking about. And instead, there are people claiming that human beings don't have two sexes or that girls can become boys or that sex is a spectrum or that suddenly we don't need to keep men out of the spaces where women are naked or vulnerable or whatever. You know, it's all unbelievably stupid. And it's so stupid that intelligent, ordinary people think this can't possibly be happening. Like if it hasn't come home to you, if you haven't got a child who's telling you that they're trans or it hasn't happened in your workplace or your marriage or something, you know, it's kind of something that's visible, you know, in your um, in your rear view mirror almost. Like you see it just in a drive by speed and you think that the critics must be exaggerating. Like nobody can be making claims this stupid. And then political polarization, I think, is another reason. In America, it's become very associated with the right wing and with Christians Although I really don't think that stating that sex is real, binary and immutable is either a right wing or a Christian position, particularly. I mean, it used to just be called common sense. But once it's labelled far right or Christian conservative, then people who don't um, regard those labels as meaningful for them think they must reject it. And then that means not listening to the people who say it and just digging further and further into your silo. And and then it becomes true, actually, that it's a, a Christian conservative position. But then that's also part of that uh, identitarian weaponized toolbox, isn't it, with language, is applying labels. You set the labels up, you apply the stigma to them, and then you just roll them out to anybody that dares pop their head above the parapet and say something that you don't like to hear. So, and we all know them, don't we? We old white, white supremacist, racist, uh, anti-vaxxer is now new, you know, with the pandemic, they are just all there literally to stifle conversation and stop debate. Well, it means that people don't listen to what you say because Mm. there are people who are very bad. I mean, the things I get called most are anti-Semitic and genocidal, which is just very strange. You know, people who don't know me, well, I mean, I might be anti-Semitic or genocidal. There are people who are those things. So how is somebody who doesn't know me to know that those things are just 100% invented? And so it's very effective, really. It mm. means that you have to keep, you know, you have to you, you have to keep saying, you know, I'm not those things. And when you're on the back foot, like what, you know, it's the sort of never apologize, never explain thing. Like once you have to say, no, actually, I don't really fancy, you know, mass slaughter of an entire group. Like people think, oh, why does she have to say that? You know, no smoke without fire or something. Yeah, but see, I'm glad you brought up genocidal because the trans, this concept of trans genocide, I'm waiting to see the bodies. I don't know where these bodies are. Do you know where they're hidden? It's funny, isn't it? It's such a an obviously falsifiable claim. You know, in, in any developed country, we record deaths and causes of death. And I mean, I think that if there were trans people dying in any numbers at all, let alone large numbers, we'd never hear the end of it. And I realised recently that um, it's it's because of the narcissism at the centre of the claim 
that you can redefine yourself as anything you like and everyone else must go along. Um, there's a concept of narcissistic injury. Um, one of the things about a narcissistic person is that um, they experience anybody at all criticizing them or disagreeing with what they say about their inflated sense of self. They experience that as a grotesque attack, like actually something that's uh, you know potentially um, fatal. So I think that's part of the reason. I think that when you say, you know, you do you, I don't care how you identify, it doesn't bother me, dress how you like, but I'm not calling men women or women men. That feels like a narcissistic injury and they respond to it with a totally disproportionate rage. And to them, it feels like being um, erased. That's another word they use. They're being erased. I'm like, I'm not erasing you. I'm just noticing that you're male or female, mm. Did which you I notice see- about everybody. I can't stop myself. Did you see any of the imagery when Posey Parker came to visit New Zealand? And rage, I think, is a word that describes a lot of that imagery. There was a lot of that rage that was internalised and then was acted out, and it woke a lot of New Zealanders up. Up until that point, we were just really sleeping along. Most everyday Kiwis, (coughs) excuse me, most everyday Kiwis were looking at this issue and they were thinking, oh, this is a town problem. This is a problem that's in town. It's not a problem in the rest of New Zealand. And then they saw those images. We had a media who, like the riots in the United States, you know, the fiery but mostly peaceful protests, you know, that CNN had, we had similar things here. And all you could see in the vision were these exceptionally threatening, angry, rageful men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, really nasty men look around for where the trouble is. They don't start with the cause. They look to see where the trouble is and that's where they go. So when I was a child in the north of Ireland, you know, when there were still the troubles going on, you know, the sort of men who like to punch people and do worse, well, they would join the paramilitaries. And I mean, honestly, it wasn't because they had a very deep sense of the importance of staying within the United Kingdom or of reuniting Ireland, or at least not always. Just, you know, troublesome people go where the trouble is. And right now, if you fancy standing and shouting at women, in particular middle-aged women, so women like your mother, and calling them, you know, disgusting things, you can do it totally with impunity if you go along to a rally of gender-critical feminists. Um, In other words, people who notice that there are two sexes and insist that that matters for women's rights. And you will not only not get policed in doing so, you will be able to think of yourself as some sort of uh, civil rights warrior. It's incredibly appealing. It's, you know, it's the new misogyny. Mm, This always seems to be a repeating pattern of women being self-destructive towards women and men getting their own way and acting out their misogyny as they always have. The costumes may be different, but the intent is still the same. Yeah, I have a mug that has the suffragette colours on it. Uh, which is um, green, white, and purple. And it just says, same shit, different century. And I really think it's true. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Very much so. Why do you think some of the smartest people in our societies have fallen for this ideology? Um, So there's an interesting phenomenon whereby um, it takes quite a clever person to believe certain things that are obviously stupid to anyone who isn't so blinded by their own cleverness. Once you have decided that you believe something, which may be for reasons to do with your intellectual tribe or because you have a family member who requires you to believe it, then you can turn your brain power 
into finding the the sort of complicated self justifications required for believing it, and also um, putting it into putting your brain power into the incredible amount of effort that's required to conceal the truth from yourself, the truth about your motivations, the truth about what's going on more widely. So cleverness really can be weaponized against yourself, and also. You know, clever people are the ones who mostly go to university and the ones who went to university and studied anything in the liberal arts or the humanities or the social sciences in the past 10, maybe 20 years. They've been told as fact that, you know, to notice the sex of somebody who doesn't want you to notice their sex is bigotry, that not accepting a man who says he's a woman as a woman is exactly the same as racism and that it's very difficult to define sex. There's a whole bunch of things they've been taught you know, as fact alongside actual facts. And you quickly look around you and realise that if you don't accept this, you're going to be completely cast out. Mm. And so you don't question it. Mm. And if you do question it, well, you probably drop out. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, clever people can believe very stupid things because they're able to create the inventions that you need to believe those very stupid things. You mentioned tribe. How tribal is us? I mean, human beings are tribal by nature, and we're not as rational as we think we are by any means. You know, our brains evolved in order to help us to survive, not in order to help us to be calculating illogical machines. And in a tribe, which is what we all lived in until relatively recently in evolutionary terms, being cast out by your tribe really definitely meant death. So it was much more important to agree with what your tribe said than to be factually accurate or correct. Um, You know, that's what the function of tribal religions is. It's to maintain the cohesion of the tribe. You know, we haven't changed. There hasn't been long enough, evolutionarily speaking, for us to change from that. So if all your tribe believes something, you have to be a particularly disagreeable sort of person in the psychological sense, which is just that you don't mind disagreeing with people. Mm. You don't mind them disagreeing with you. You don't seek approval. You have to be quite a disagreeable person in that sense to say, well, I don't have to go along with that because you do feel like you're going to be cast out and it does feel like social death. And social death for tribal people is death. Mm. Yeah. So it's very, very tribal. And then once you're inside a tribe, you believe what you're told within your tribe and you discount what's said outside your tribe because that's you know, that's monsters. There be monsters outside mm. your tribe. Yeah. There seems to be almost a, a fear of facing up to the truth from a, a number of people. Like they know what the truth is. They just don't want to face it. You mentioned in an interview recently that you were speaking out largely due to because you didn't have any skin in the game. So it allowed you to do that because you must have faced since the book was released and the amount of work that you've done, there must be a huge group of people buying for you to be cancelled, or are you now uncancelable, Helen? You've uh, no, cancelled. I'm definitely not uncancelable. There's precisely one person in this game who's uncancelable, and that's J.K. Rowling. None yeah. of the rest of us are that big. Bless yeah. her. I mean, she didn't need to come into this fight, and bless her, she made such a difference by doing so. So she's too big to cancel. I'm not. Um, I guess when I said I didn't have any skin in the game, what I meant was, you know, I'm not trans-identified. I don't have a trans-identified child. You know, I'm of an age that, like, I'm in my fifties, so. It's not that that all the people around me are going to cast me out, which is true for some of the teenagers and girls in their 20s that I talk to. They know very well that if they say anything about any of this, that they're going to have no friends. So, okay, that gives me some ability to speak because the people who most want to speak are the people who have trans-identified children and they think their children are making a terrible mistake. 
And very few of them are able to speak except privately because they don't want their child to cut them off. So I hear a lot from those people and I feel a moral obligation as a journalist to amplify their voices mm. because that's what journalism is meant to do. Actually, it's meant to give voice to the voiceless. Like that's kind of the motto of journalism, but we're not doing that right now. I have received a lot of criticism, but I mean, I guess I'm as tribal as anyone else because I found my new tribe, which is the people who think this is all nonsense and are working very hard, especially in the UK, to roll back the intrusions and encroachments of gender ideology on all of us. And I find that an enjoyable and um, fulfilling um, thing to be doing with my days. So I can ignore the fact that there's a very strange belief system. I don't think about it moment to moment. I think about the work that I'm doing. Mm. And that's satisfying. The book was 2018, 2019? No, no, it's a 2021. The book came out in 2021, summer 2021. So it's about two years ago. Yeah, it feels so much longer than that. It's a long time in the world of an ideological world, isn't it? Time. Oh my God, it's so true. I mean, you know, you know this word TERF, like which stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist, which I don't think is a very good description of what we believe. But anyway, it's stuck. I often think that TERF years are like dog years. You know, I live through seven years to normal one year. So much happens every day in this ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel that there has been a positive momentum that there has now actually been a swing, even if it's like to I to fight a problem, you need to identify a problem. Are you starting to see some positive movement of people waking up that are finding their voices a little bit and adding their voices to this conversation? Absolutely. And the thing about this sort of social change is that it um, it's like an avalanche and that you know it's little things at first and then they make more things move. So every person who speaks up and every person who says, look, I don't go along with this, the emperor has no clothes, that makes it easier for the next person. And that speeds up. I would caution in thinking that this can be just sort of sorted by Christmas or something like that, though, because this was going on for a long time before anyone sensible and sane noticed. And during that time, uh, this ideology sort of got its tendrils into all sorts of laws, rules, regulations, policies. It's captured pretty much the entire charitable sector, much of the media, publishing, you know, left-wing political parties. And I think of it as kind of like a Japanese knotweed that's invaded all these places and returning to sanity, returning to sanity on the subject of sex, like understanding that there are two sexes and that mostly that doesn't matter, but occasionally it does. That's going to be like clearing the Japanese knotweed. Every time you try, it just comes back. You've got to, we're going to have to be persistent and go after it for, I don't know, certainly years and maybe decades. Mm. I want to segue a little bit into money because I think money plays into this. I think these ideologies can only flourish in an environment of affluence, and that's where they started. Now that things, inflation is biting internationally, we're seeing pennies being pinched and people finding things a lot more difficult financially. Those who see the financial interest in the ideology, so the NGOs that are raising millions and billions of dollars, the those that find it financially advantaged through trans washing or greenwashing or whatever the, the ideology may be, and then the reality of what we have in the current economic climate. What sort of effect do you think that that might have moving forward? Do you think that actually might help wake people up that they'll start seeing when they've got something bigger to worry about, the absolute nonsense of this will become more apparent? Yeah, possibly. But the problem is that it's now embedded. Um, So if you take just a standard organisation that has, I mean, in this country, it's Stonewall that comes in. 
and they come in, you sign up to their scheme, they give you, you know, you pay a relatively small fee, but of course you pay it every year and there's hundreds and thousands of businesses paying it. So it's very nice money for them. And they come in and tell you what to do to be a champion and then to be put on a league table. And every year it has to escalate because last year you did whatever it was. Well, this year they're going to ask you to do more. So we're now at, you know, give two different ID cards to non-binary staff so they can use whichever one they want each day. I'm not making that one up. That's literally one of the things they recommend, um, giving them different email addresses so they can email as a different person each day. Like, how is that to work? You know, it's just so stupid. And if you ever drop out, it's a bit like a a protection racket. You know, if you ever drop out, you look like you're a very bad employer and that you don't care about equality, diversity and inclusion and so on. So they've kind of got you over a barrel. And there you are. Like this is happening across the media, for example. And the media industry is dying on its feet. Like, as you know, it's gone through incredible difficulties over the last 20 years. Like all the money has gone to Google and to Twitter and to Facebook. There's no advertising left. You know, salaries are flatlining. People are being cast, laid off, absolutely dying as an industry, and yet absolutely obsessed at the same time with all this stuff because it's become embedded. And also a lot of young people really feel that they must or that they should play along with this stuff. So they come into the workplace and into the workforce. And the first thing they ask is things like, you know, do you have gender neutral toilets? And, uh, you know, can I check that you, um, you're gender affirming? And what's your policy on this? And they put their pronouns in their email signature. And you're like, this is just so tiresome. Um, I, so, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer like that, you know, people will give up this nonsense when they've got better things to be doing in a difficult economy. I think it's with us now. You know, we actually have to actively get rid of it and move it along. Mm. And I'm also wondering whether it's a generational thing. You know how often one generation will rebel against the generation previously. And I'm of similar age to you. So I look at all of this through the lens and thinking, when did common sense turn into Elvis and leave the building? I just don't get it. I have a grumpy old lady moment. I look at my sons. And I talk really open a bit openly with them about this. I talk openly with their friends about this. I get some hope because they can see it. They see it predominantly amongst their female friends, but they can see it. And I say to them, well, what do you think? And universally, they say, oh, they can see it for what it is. They see the Yeah, I mean, the peak has passed. I really think so. Even though schools are desperately attempting to totally ideologically brainwash younger children. If schools go the way of the worst in America, you know, California and the rest, we will, we were lost. We've left the enlightenment is over. It's gone. Yeah. My experience is that teenagers aren't as bad as people in their late teens and early twenties, or maybe even up to the age of 30, like graduates, late twenties are really, really bad on this, like horrific. And then the girls, as you say, are much, much worse than the boys. A lot of, a lot of girls have really decided that trans people are the most oppressed in the world. And there's this sort of somewhat toxic dynamic sometimes among teenage girls where they like to adopt a, a pet oppressed person and make themselves feel good or, um, you know, very performatively do virtue in front of everybody. And boys don't tend to go very much for that stuff. So, yeah, the boys are much less likely to go along with it. And then, of course, it just will become boring, like especially the things like the neo-pronouns and, you know, the affirmations and all that mm. stuff. Like nothing lasts forever. No fashion lasts forever. Yeah. I, I think those things have already passed their peak. I just hate the fact that people have forgotten how to use the word no, because there are just things that you just have to go, no, hand goes up, no. We got an email from a friend laughing, like literally laughing their ass off because 
they got an email from the principal because they now have a furry identifying at the school. This email from the, the principal trying to convey to parents to then have open conversations to convey to their sons that this is now what's happening and that they must uh, allow this boy to identify at school and there be no bullying. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's a failure of, of, of adulting, a failure of parenting, isn't it? You know, I'm the eldest of nine kids, big Irish family, and my parents are great. They're very kind people. But, you know, there wasn't much time for that sort of bullshit. Like, there was just too much else going on and too many other people to be thinking about at any point. I think we've forgotten. It's not just the word no. It's th- just things like that. That's not going to happen, darling. Mm-hmm. Or um, I know you'd like it, but I'm afraid I can't do it. Yeah. You know, that sort of just kind, firm explanation that this is not a perfect world. You'd not get everything you want. And then another trend that I feel it very much feeds into this is this idiotic idea that you should bring your whole self to work. I want people to leave their whole selves at home. I don't want them to bring whatever, you know, personal issues or whatever. Okay, I understand that we have to be supportive. Of course, people may be going through a hard time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about turning up and you know, telling everybody that it's rainbow month or that it's this, that or the other month. I don't care. We're here to do a job. Let's all of us turn up, do our job and go and live at home. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up with family, actually. I'm I'm from a small family, but a large extended family, large Irish Maori extended family. Do you think part of this ideology is grasped hold because the kids that are that are there now, so the teenagers in early 20s now, are part of that group. You know, the birth rate has dropped significantly since the early 70s. And so these are kids that are now growing up in much smaller nuclear families. So therefore, they're little prince and princesses in their families and those boundaries are no longer there. And as you said, they're taking their whole self to university, their whole self to school, their whole self to work. Do you think that is a part of the evolution of this? Oh, absolutely, surely. All the things you said and to which I'd add that in this world that we've moved to where people have far fewer children and far later, many more people reach early adulthood without any experience of having to look after children like, okay, so I was from a very big family, but even if I wasn't, you know, kids played outdoors and it was expected that the older kids did some element of looking after younger kids. So you just become a bit aware of the fact that children believe a whole load of very odd things. So I have two boys and my younger boy is now 17, but when he was two, three, four, he literally was a train. I'm not kidding. I mean, he got up every day and told me what colour he wanted to wear. That was his paint. He called his hands buffers. He called his feet wheels. He lived for Thomas the Tank Engine. He had maybe 20 or more little trains and he'd bring them out with him and he'd talk to them. And and he abruptly sort of stopped when he was four. But he really spent about two years being a train. And then you hear people saying that children know their gender identities when they're two. It's like, well, you know, you really have to have not met many children to think that that makes any sense. Um, and, and then it's, it's very much American-led ideas of what parenting is about, that it's about affirming your child, like it's about self-esteem and it's about f- learning from your child. That's another one I've heard, you know, um, child-centered parenting. And if that just meant like, let's not be mean to children, I'm fine for it. Like, let's not pretend that children are little adults, but it doesn't. It means that the child is the king of the household. And that's absolutely nonsense. I'm not going along with that. 
I mean, I'm not mean to my children, but I'm the head of the household, thanks. Like, I'm the grown-up. I'm the one who knows stuff. They're, they're the little ignorant people who have to be looked after until they become adults and told what's what. No, I read a book recently, which was, uh, it was all about um, parents talking about their trans children. And it was full of these idiotic quotes like, um, I've learned so much from my little trans guy. He is so wise. And, uh, you know, I have grown as a mother by witnessing his true spirit, mother of six-year-old. You're like, seriously? didn't learn anything from my six-year-old except to be more patient and how to survive without any sleep. Actually, one of my sons was a train too. And then he snapped out from being a train and decided he wanted to be a velociraptor because he thought that was much more exciting. That's fine. That's their imaginations. And you let them do that. There is no harm. Yeah. But the minute they start identifying, then you have all the psychological harms that can go on board with that. And then once the social transitioning, I hate that term, then moves to hormone replacement and puberty blockers and this irreversible damage. Are we going to have an entire generation of children who are going to be permanently scarred from this? I once saw how many people have been given lobotomies during the lobotomy craze. Um, And I think it was in America, I think it was 50,000. That's all. And we still regard lobotomies as the quintessential example of a medical scandal about 70 years later. You know, back then it was so fashionable and they were so sure it was the right thing to do that the guy who invented the lobotomy was given the Nobel Prize. And now, you know, we recognise that chopping out people, bits of people's brains was a true human rights abuse. Well, they're still lauding John money and look how that turned out. Well, exactly. And I mean, we're going through a similar medical scandal, except I think the numbers are probably larger. Nobody's counting because in American gender clinics where this happens the most, a lot of them are private and Planned Parenthood will give out hormones with just a phone conversation or a one hour drop in and it'll be a nurse who you talk to and not even a doctor. Um, There are hundreds of Planned Parenthood clinics and no gatekeeping at them at all. uh, No gatekeeping at them at all. Um, So we just don't know how many kids are being caught up on this, but really a lot think about what social transition means. There's this real tendency, and I know I said it at first too, to think, oh, well, social transition, you know, at least that's reversible. Like the bad thing about it is that it leads to irreversible changes. Like pe- children who are socially transitioned are much, much, much more likely to go on to, to want puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones than ones who aren't socially transitioned. But I've since realized that social transition on its own causes a lot of harm. Um. For a start, it's a lie that is told to a child and that the child then requires everyone around them to go along with. And they're told that if people don't go along with it, then those people are hateful, bigoted, want them dead, all that sort of thing. So it creates a very fragile child who really just believes that reality is hateful and that people noticing reality are bigots who want them dead. Like That's psychologically extremely damaging. And then there's a lot of families where... Um, The parents are absolutely desperate to try to stop their child from doing this, but they fear that if they are strict about it, their child will kill themselves, because that's the lie that's told by the transgender lobby groups. And those parents find themselves in a desperately difficult situation because everyone's against them. Doctors are against them. Schools are against them. Social workers threaten to take their children away. Like It's absolutely horrific. Their own friends and family members sometimes think that they must be bigots and cut them off. And I talked recently to two families where a young teenage girl 
temporarily identified as either non-binary or a boy. That's often the transition. They start saying non-binary and then they say trans boy. And in neither case did the girl go on to anything physical. Like in both cases, they desisted without even using a breast binder. And the families were in bits, massively traumatized by the whole experience because what they learned was that all the institutions they had thought, like these were happy families, you know, happily married families with great kids, nice jobs, like just great people, the sort of people who think that the world works properly. And they had learned that they were living in the upside down, that none of that was true. That is a scarring experience. It's very like the experience of being randomly attacked on the street, which leaves people really traumatized because they can think, you know, I thought I was safe all those years and actually I was never safe. So, yeah, these are people who are really being harmed by this, even even in the case of the most minor examples, a child who temporarily identifies as something they're not and then comes out of it. Mm. And there's also that insertion, too, between both state and ideology into that doctor-patient relationship. We saw that during COVID. We're seeing that now. And that entire principle of informed consent and do no harm seems to be only a sometimes thing. Trust. I worry about that trust being eroded. And I worry very much about trust in the education system in particular. Like a lot of teachers really genuinely seem to believe it's their job and not parents' job to tell children what to think and are absolutely unhesitating in telling children that their parents are bigots. That's a terrible intrusion on the most fundamental relationship that any of us have. I mean, your teachers are not going to be there for you if you're sick. They're not going to be there when you're old. You know, It's your family that do that for you. And I know there are people whose families don't do it for them, but they're the most unfortunate people in society. Like nothing else can replace a family. And yet these teachers think they have the right to tell children that what their parents think is backward and bigoted and that their parents hate them. Like what a dreadful thing to say to a child, that if your parents don't affirm a lie, they hate you. There was a woman here, um, God rest her soul, she died a several years ago. Her name was Celia Lashley, and she is a former prison officer. And she saw a lot of young men coming through her prison doors and saw patterns in these young men. And the biggest pattern that she saw was what she called an underdeveloped risk muscle. She worked a lot with these youth, particularly in this country, Maori youth, but all of these young men. And she said, these young men were disconnected from their masculinity. They were disconnected from the wider environment, but they were also not able to assess risk and understand consequence and boundaries because they had never had those boundaries provided to them as they were growing up. So she came out with the series when I was raising my boys, which was for me really important. And I have taken a lot of those things to heart. I'm seeing that now with other kids Parents in my sphere with children the same age, they're going through these things and those boundaries are not there. And the kids have been helicoptered and cotton walled and affirmed and loved and cherished and nurtured, which is a wonderful thing. We want to do that with our children. But if we don't allow them to experience risk, loss, that resilience is not there. So when they're finally set free, they become statistics on the road, they become statistics to these sorts of ideologies. Are you seeing patterns like that up there? Yeah, I mean, the one I pick out really is um, this idea that any failure, any anxiety, any challenge to your worldview 
is something that's so horrible and terrifying and dangerous that you must be kept away from it. You must be kept safe from it and you must reject it. Like you must tell people that you're not going to listen to anything so hateful, that sort of thing. Whereas actually trying things that are difficult is generally a very good thing for you, unless it's so difficult that you end up, you know, killing yourself or something. And it's good whether you succeed or fail. If you succeed, you learn that you can do difficult things and you gain confidence. But when you fail, you learn that um, the world does the ground doesn't open up in front of you. The life doesn't end. It's actually a very reassuring thing to realize that you can fail and get up and try again. And so there's an epidemic of uh, children self-diagnosing or being diagnosed as having anxiety disorder or depression. And those kids are then given special accommodation in education, which is, you know, they get longer time for their tests or they aren't put through timed tests or they're allowed to not do things like, say, present their work to the class or be called on in class to speak. But those are precisely the low risk, well, no risk, really, uh, sorts of slightly scary challenges that enable you to build up your muscle for coping with anxiety. And so these kids who are have anxiety disorders and are being specially treated because they have an anxiety disorder are not being given what they need to learn to cope with anxiety. And this creates monumentally selfish and fragile young adults who think that the whole world should be allowed to, well, should be made to bend to accommodate them. Like how is someone like that going to cope in the world of work when deadlines are quite common? Mm. You see people come into journalism who think that it's extraordinary that they might have to work to a deadline. As they're moving through the education system now, there is often no winners and losers. That's so wrong. Yeah, the experience of losing, of wanting something and failing is actually a very important experience. I mean, to, if I'm to do one of my parenting stories, I remember years ago when my older boy um, very much wanted to be chosen to be the soloist in a performance at Christmas in his school. But there was a kid who was just a much better singer. Like there was a kid who was really, really good. And my kid was just good. And he said to me, did I think that he should put himself forward? And I said, well, what's going to happen if you don't put yourself forward? You're not going to get it. Now, what happens if you do put yourself forward? Well, you might get it, but you probably won't. It's a no brainer. Like, put yourself forward. And he did. And he didn't get it. And the ground didn't open up. And I said, I was very proud of him. And that was a great experience. And he was quite happy with that. And we've always remembered that since, these experiences of trying to get something that you want and failing. And that's all right. Your mum still loves you. You still have all your friends. Mm. You know, your legs didn't, didn't fall off. And it's just a very growing experience is how you, you produce more confident people. Well, you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. Yeah. So yeah. And you probably to... won't win the lottery. So, you know, that's exactly. fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, the book Trans is available pretty much everywhere. Um, Amazon here in New Zealand. Uh, I, I've actually downloaded it on Audible. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, where else can people find you, Helen? If they're loving this conversation, they want to have more Helen, where do they find you? My website is thehelenjoyce.com. Some poor American artist is called Helen Joyce and she got there first. I often wonder what her emails are like, but anyway, too bad. So thehelenjoyce.com. And I have a weekly newsletter, um, which I put there. And I try to put up most of my conversations with people like you there, although actually I'm way behind at the moment. So they can read, they can they can listen to my back catalogue and read my back catalogue there. Um, I also have a column in The Critic, which is a monthly magazine here in the UK, and that's obviously available online anywhere in the world. And I tweet at H Joyce Gender. So my first initial H, my surname Joyce, and the word gender all run together. Quite a prolific tweeter, so people will find everything that I do there. 
That's wonderful. This has been Helen Joyce. And if you want more great content like this, continue to check things out, especially at our realitycheck.radio backslash replays, which is if you've missed this, you'll find that there as well. Thank you very much, Helen. I do appreciate the time you've given us today. Uh, Don't disappear, everybody. Still more great content, including Woke Word of the Week. And Marty is back with Media Matters. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. I am Marie, your host. My second guest this morning is Tim Mitchell, founder and chair of Hartford College in Australia. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm, I'm excellent. Before anyone asks, okay, Marie, why are you talking to a founder and a chair of a school in Australia? Well, there's a very good reason for that. You have a fascinating story about Hartford College. How did a parent like you end up helping with other parents found a school and the reason behind it? What's the genesis of this project? I think the genesis is a general feeling amongst parents over the last, say, 15 years that boys' education standards have been declining inexorably, slowly in this country. Um, In our part of Sydney, there are some traditional schools, large schools, and and I'm not pointing the finger at any of those schools as being um, below standard, but I think there were sufficient numbers of people that thought, well, let's try and do something different. Let's uh, look at what's happening globally. We've observed a trend, I'd, I'd say it's a wave in some countries of um, what's called character education, the character education movement, which in part is based on a, a traditional liberal arts, some call it a, a classical education, um, and also fused with a, a model that really tries, strives to develop the individual. So part of the development of the individual boy is really part of, of, of that of that boy's character. Of course, this applies to girls as well, but in our case, it's a boy's school. 
So what years are you doing from? Is it from zero through 13 or? We, we started years five, six and seven this year. Um, we would have started earlier, but the pandemic knocked us around a bit. We, the project really got going in about 2020. But of course, starting a school is not, a, not as easy as falling off the chair. So um, we wanted to start last year, but uh, as it turned out, we started this year, mm -hmm. five, six and seven, and we'll add a year on until we get to year 12. Right. Every and, year. So what sort of a role, I mean, how many boys are we talking? 22, 22 to start with, so it's a small school. Um, I was a little bit daunted by the size of it, but everyone I spoke to that started the school said, you've got 22, that's great. We started with 13 or you know, 15 over the years. So um, I'm quite happy uh, that we've got 22 and uh, things are looking good for next year in terms of a pipeline of boys that are, or families that are interested in coming to the school and we'll fill up numbers in year five next year Six is not a natural jumping point. Um, seven is a natural point. Year seven, when you know, uh, families are looking for a new high school for their son. So I expect seven will fill up again bigger next year and, uh, and we'll have a new year eight class. Wow, that's fantastic. So liberal arts, let's go back to that because that's what really intrigued me when I had a look at your website because it looks like that you've actually founded the school on what are the foundations of traditional Western values, the enlightenment values. So how did you go around developing the curriculum to fit those values away from the current curriculum that you were on offer for state schools, for example? We, we had a very good look at what's being developed in the States in particular. Of course, in America, they're not constrained by state-sanctioned syllabus or, or curriculum. Um, so there's a real potpourri, I suppose, of different curricula developed over there. We wanted to see the ones that have worked best. Um, we came across one called In Memoria Press, which is a uh, I suppose broadly a Christian approach to traditional Western liberal arts. Um, we we've seen that that has developed very strongly, and then we knew that we had to comply with our NIS, what's called New South Wales, you have the New South Wales Education Standards Authority. So there is a state-sanctioned syllabus, um, but that's not um, that's not unduly restrictive. There are things in that that you'd expect. In Australia, there are some indigenous um, studies that are required. But, you know, as in New Zealand, you have Maori studies. There's um, studies that put us in the context of Asia, um, and that's that's all good. I mean, I think in, if you go to a classical liberal arts school in America, you'll find similar things. You'll find they study indigenous um, American Indian culture just because that's their their place, and there's some deference to what came before European settlement. Um, otherwise, um, the usual things that you'd expect. I mean, the syllabus is broadly quite good. The challenge for us, however, to create a curriculum is to, and notice I use the word singular, a curriculum for a school is, um, is a singular thing. It's an organic thing. Um, and the whole is greater than the sum of all its parts. It's not just you know, a bit of chemistry, a bit of physics, a bit of English, a bit of history, a bit of religion, in our case, being a Christian school. It's not just all these different silos. It's working out how we can connect all of those together. So that was important um, from the get-go. It was a fundamental ethos that we wanted to 
inscribe in our teachers is that all the teachers are working together, talking together, communicating constantly about how all the different subject areas interact and overlap. So um, long-winded answer to your question, but trying to come up with a unique curriculum that is still compliant with the NIS uh, syllabus, but there is sufficient latitude in that in that syllabus that allows us to come up with a, a unique um, version that achieves our aims, which is um, really trying to uncover uh, the great body of work, which is which is what Western culture is built on. Warts and all, I mean, it's not all it's not all great. We, we so people sometimes think if you're advocating Western culture, then you're somehow being elitist. I, I, I think the contrary. I think there's plenty of things that are, you know, in the West we we don't want to be proud of. But then, but then there's plenty of things, plenty of people, great literary scholars and poets and philosophers and scientists, theologians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, plenty of people that we can look back at and think, my gosh, you know, these are these are unique, incredible people in our history that have influenced our, our culture. We want our boys to know that ideas influence influence culture, and they need to. Um, to look back and, and see who these these great uh, individuals are, as as uh, Isaac Newton said, I stand on the shoulders of giants so that I can see further into the future. Mm, yeah, and and also too, I think currently now with the pandemic and and all the changes that have happened since that time, there are a lot of things that I don't know about you, but I get a sense of deja vu. And yeah. I wonder to myself that that old saying again, those who don't study history are then fated to repeat it. So I think it's so important to have those history studies there uh, for young men, especially. And what are some of the things that you do differently, particularly with young male education? I said to you before we got started, I have two sons and I have my boys at a single sex school very deliberately because I believe that that gives them the environment to be and grow as young men, what are some of the things that you do at Hartford to help develop your fine young men? I'll give you a short answer, which might lead to other questions, because um, I think we are doing a few things that are unique. The first philosophy that we espouse is that parents are the most important people in the school. Part of the challenge is making sure that all the parents that come to the school understand that. They, they actually are the most important people. And the school's there to augment what the parents do. As parents, we're all responsible for our children and we, we want them to grow up and be the best human beings they can be and make the best contribution they can make to society. Parents are the primary educators and the, we want a symbiotic relationship. As a, The school wants to have a symbiotic relationship with the parents. Now, that doesn't suit all parents. Obviously, we've had lots of people that have come and kicked the tyres of the, the school, Hartford College, and decided for whatever reason it's not for them. So we are looking for parents that want to be part of that close relationship with the school. Now, how does that work practically? It works with our mentoring system. Each boy has a mentor drawn from the teaching staff, and the boy meets with the mentor for, say, around 15 minutes every two weeks. Now, that could be just sort of sitting in the playground or, you know, going for a stroll around, around the oval or, or just very casual, very natural, but one-on-one. And the mentors picking up, building up to, building up some trust with that boy because he's an adult who's looking after each boy, a bit like a caring uncle, I suppose. Well, probably a better example is we all as adults 
are familiar with mentoring most of us you know when you leave school you go you go to some professional job and there's usually someone in some capacity that gives you some mentoring well we're trying to start that process from year five in our case and then the mentor meets with the parents each term for a full hour so that's a commitment from the parents each the parents come along and, and sit with the mentor and they just talk about everything really everything they want to talk about and it could be from he really is messy in his bedroom well <laughs> that might have a connection with the standard of his work at school in some way well that so the, the parents and the, and the mentor they're sort of teasing these things out and the mentor is um you know talking giving tips because the mentors are very experienced but also liaising with the teacher or teachers it's a fluid uh, conversation which is all in the best interest of the boy ultimately I guess that brings in the wider distractions, isn't it? There's a lot of distractions for young men now. By having that involvement with both parents and mentors at school, it creates a very, very clear space for boys to think and develop. Yeah. Do you do you get that feeling with the young men you're working with? It's a, it's a huge challenge, you know, the screens and so forth that are distracting boys this, these days. And I think most people are onto it, but most parents probably struggle with it i mean i know we do where our youngest son goes to hartford and he's got older siblings and of course you know you know how difficult it is trying to control a young boy uh, keeping away from all the multiple devices that there are around the house well you know we're not we're not overly strict about that but we just are constantly saying you know don't spend your whole weekend sitting on a screen and you know, do other things and you have to you have to block those opportunities to some extent and i think most parents are alive to the need to do that. I think a boy that didn't have some sort of discipline in that area is going to get picked up at our school and the mentor is going to try and work with the parents to to address it. But mm. yeah, I mean it's it's probably the number one challenge I think at the moment is you know boys spending the whole weekends or the whole holidays, you know, gaming or um my son has a has an absolute passion for um air traffic control at the moment. So if we left him there he'd spend his whole you know, holidays, which we've just finished. We've just had three weeks of holidays. I'm sure he'd spend the whole time happily on a computer um, interacting with who knows what <laughs> around the world, you know, flying planes in and out of airports, which is, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's a, a pretty sensible thing to do. It doesn't sound very dangerous. It's more just the disproportionate amount of time that can get spent on a screen. So walk us through some of the differences with your liberal arts approach. So here at the philosophical movement is quite big. So Steiner schools, uh, particularly in the area that I live in, there is a the nexus for those schools here. That philosophy is often very student-led, but it also, as you said, your son has a love for air traffic control. So it will use that as a vehicle for other learning. How do you do that a little bit different with liberal arts? Because I know with liberal arts, there's a lot of focus on history and the lessons of history. How do you sort of tackle that within the framework of a curriculum? Well, philosophy is compulsory from year five at our school, as is a language. It's in year five and six, it's more French, but that's, that's melding into Latin as well. So by the time they're in high school, they're doing Latin and French. There's a, a great emphasis on reading. So we actually have reading times during the day. Just, I think just trying to cross fertilize ideas, events in history. I wouldn't say history necessarily is more important than others, but an example of where they might interact might be they're talking about the ancient Greeks and uh, our philosophy teacher might mention Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. 
and informed boys that have never heard of these figures before that these people were alive about 400 odd years before Christ. Uh, around about that time, uh, the world was trying to starting to move out, so they start to touch on things that they've learned about ancient history, uh, starting to move outwards from the Greek Empire, and then that eventually melded into well, became the the Roman Empire was the dominant empire. So they're talking to each other in, in those sorts of uh, subject areas about things that are corresponding. Everything in, in term one will correspond in terms of the moment in, in history that it occurred. We're not at this stage yet, but later on, let's say in physics, they start to touch on subatomic physical forces or the, the fundamental forces of physical forces of the universe. How does the idea of a quark moving in a subatomic uh, space relate to Aristotle's prime mover theory, for example? You know, it gets it gets the boys thinking about ideas, but also connecting those ideas very much when appropriate, when relevant to the real world, to, to the world of science. Yeah. So, I mean, Archimedes, for example, would be yeah. someone that would crop up in your curriculum. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So do the boys get engaged with that? Because they must, when they talk to their peers, their peers are saying, what? You know, are they loving it? Is that something that they get excited about? My son came home after a week at the school and I said, what's the, what's your favourite subject? He just said philosophy, which astonished me. I was so happy about that. I, yeah, they do. They do. And the feedback, from, I don't talk to all the boys, but I, I hear what my son tells me. But I talk to most of the parents and the parents are typically saying things like, you know, little Johnny's turned around 180 degrees this year in terms of his desire to, to go to school and his, his interest in learning. He loves going to school to learn. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the answer is yes, they are. They're, they're engaging with this method very much because they've come from somewhere where for some reason, and I don't have a microscope on every single family and boy, they, they have been quite unhappy with their school experience from where they've come from. How do you find finding educators? Because if you've got educators that have come through the normal grist of the mill, and I'm assuming the education sausage factory in Australia is not too different to the one here. How do you find those really top quality educators for your boys? Is that a, a challenge? That's a massive challenge. I mean, we're still still so small that I think we haven't felt the real bite on, on that. But I'm aware that broadly, both in the state system here and the Catholic system, I'm not sure about all the independent schools, but in the big system, they are really starved of teachers but that i mean that's a broader problem generally anyway but i think your question is more directed to well what about the type of teacher that has this kind of liberal arts ethos or you know that sort of grounding the, yeah. they i'm picking you just wouldn't pop a, pop a teacher like that off the shelf no, you would have no. to work, do a lot of research to find someone with yeah. that level of knowledge uh teaching they're right mm. without a doubt I don't think you could start a school with, with 25 teachers and expect, you know, to find 25 teachers that fit the bill like that in Australia at the moment. Um, if you're in a, in America, I think you would because uh, they're probably two or three decades ahead in this respect. But they have that wonderful liberal arts tertiary tradition, which we're starting. I mean, I want to, I'd like to sort of talk about that too, but we're starting to see that emerge here, especially in Sydney. We've got institutions like um, Notre Dame. Campion College, there's a Ramsey, a wonderful Ramsey scholarship in, in an arts degree that's at the ACU in North Sydney, which is um, focused on, on the Western tradition as well, a liberal arts degree in, in, in Western culture, Western civilization, they call it. So if we can produce 
boys that are ready to sort of hit those degrees like a duck hits water, I think um, I think it'll be a wonderful outcome. At the moment, there's a there's a gap, I suppose, <laughs> more than a gap in the market. It's a generational gap because over the last fifty years, we've seen education move a long way away from that more traditional classical liberal arts emphasis. But, you know, they're, they're coming through as well. I'd, I'd say that there's people coming out of those universities that I just mentioned that are keen as mustard to to work at a school like ours. You know, they just think that's what they're trained for and they uh, they yearn for the opportunity to be able to, to teach uh, kids uh, in, in disciplines that they're trained in. Mm. It's interesting you should say that because I know there was a report that was released here a couple of days ago and New Zealand, the citing has the most expensive on average, tertiary education now in the world more expensive than uh, the United States. And wow. this is for universe, university, so it doesn't take into our politics, but for university. Now, we don't have a lot of universities here. My youngest son is, I, let's put it this way, if I was in New South Wales, he w- would be falling over broken glass to be at Hartford College. I just, he's, history's his favourite subject. He's, you know, he loves Marie, Marie, I think well, I think I need to put that quite on our website. What you just said, <laughs> he honestly he would he and, and we had a conversation over the weekend, and we were talking about universities. And he's uh, got this year plus two more years to go, and he's worried. He's worried. He's not. He's what I call a middle of the bell curve kid. When he concentrates and focuses, he can do. You know, he's a good worker. He's diligent. He loves learning when he's engaged. He wants to go potentially into writing and journalism and media, but he also feels very strongly about having a good grounding in the classic liberal arts and classics in order to see a a wider picture and have some perspective. And his fear, and he said to me, he said, Mum, I'm worried about going to university in New Zealand because of the identitarian nature of it and the prevalence of all of the social sciences, which have now pervade everything. So you're now starting to see, as you said, universities breaking away from that. And suddenly there are some, so that's that's exciting. That yeah. gives you, you know, I mean, Hartford can become a feeder for those schools. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it becomes a goal. And I mean, just drawing back from that for one moment, 80% of the Australian Stock Exchange's top 200 countries, 80% of the chief executive officers have what you'd probably describe as a liberal arts degree, or they have an arts degree. I, I did an arts degree myself at Sydney University way back in the 80s, and, and I found it mind-expanding, having gone to a meat and potatoes school where you did your physics and chemistry and maths and English and history, and but you didn't really know a lot about what we call a liberal arts education. So what that tells you that, that a liberal arts degree uh, somehow teaches you to think, it, it gives you a broader perspective, and it's a great grounding for going on and specialising in other professional you know, degrees if that's what you choose to do. And I think this is America's great advantage. But they've, they've known that for a long time. They've got this wonderful tradition of having a an undergraduate liberal arts degree, which you know, most people who go on and do professional degrees in law or medicine or engineering or science, they, they often do these liberal arts degrees to start off with. Um, and then employers in turn look for that. You know, they look for that, that capacity to think outside the box. Albert Einstein um, said that um, he wasn't the greatest mathematician amongst his peers, but he'd had a liberal arts education 
and the liberal arts education was what allowed him to look at look at reality from a different perspective that allowed him to sort of build on the, the, the purely scientific interpretation. So easy to get off the topic. I've, I've actually uh, moved away from your question entirely. You'll have to bring, bring me back to it. No, it's, it's, I think it's really important because critical thinking is something in education that is being further and further removed. I find that in this country, it's becoming very doctrinal and it's starting at a younger level. So the interaction between student and teacher to actually expand their minds is becoming less and less. And as I said to you before we got started, I have our sons within the Catholic school system. And I have to say the Catholics here do do a great job. And we are really very, very happy with uh, where our boys are at and the interaction that they have with their teachers and they're challenged and they're forced to, as you say, have that out-of-the-box thinking. Is that a driving force? Is that one of the things that parents are coming to you for is to actually have their sons looking at the world from all different elements and perspectives? Because what we, I don't know what's like currently in Australia and the political climate, but here that focus has gotten exceptionally narrow. And when yeah. you talk to any young person at university or even at high school, they are very focused or very have opinions and thoughts in a very narrow band and they struggle to even discuss or entertain any ideas that sit outside that focus. Yeah, as, as societies, we have to be extremely wary of producing solely for vocations, ensuring that students get sufficient input so that they come out, they get you know spat out of the sausage machine at the end and, and they can fit a hole where someone needs to vocationally fill that void. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Boys' education's been sliding. I mean, it's big picture, but times have changed so much in the last 15 years for women. I think there's enough natural aspiration amongst young girls to sort of see educational as a wonderful opportunity to do anything they want to in life. Whereas boys, if their sense of education is that it's just to come out and become a a job filler, you know, an engineer or a mechanic or, or whatever it is, I think that is deeply disheartening for a lot of boys. Not all, but we're talking about wanting to produce education that strives for the best. And part of, part of the mix when you're educating to try and get the best from your children is you want them to develop a love for learning itself. It's not just learning things to get a job. It's learning the art of learning and, and loving that process. I suppose in, in one simple sense, that's what we're trying to achieve. And that's what liberal arts is. If you go back to the medieval or even the, the ancient interpretation of, of, what, of what it is, it, 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 it comes from the Latin term which meant the art of liberty, the, the art of being free. So being, being free to, to learn about truth, being, being free to learn about beauty, being free to learn about the wonders of our created universe around us. And also, too, learning doesn't need to be confined just between nine and three, does it? And a liberal arts education actually, I think, fosters that. I know our oldest son has a number of learning difficulties and challenges, but he's bright. He loves to learn and be engaged. And he has very severe dyslexia. So audiobooks for him, his world just opened up Mm -hmm. uh, when the access, easy access to audible content became available. Thank goodness I have a subscription term because honestly, the content that this kid mows through is massive. 
And it's wonderful. And he'll often come back and he'll say to me the most random things. And I'll mm. say, well, where did you hear about that? And he said, oh, listen to a book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing that, you know, on, on his own time. So because yeah. he enjoys enjoys doing it. Are you starting to see achievement now from those first students that have come through the school? Are they how are they finding the transition from Hartford College onto tertiary education? Yeah, this, it's too early to tell, really, because we're only up to year seven. Um, all I can say is turnaround that I get, as I said before, that the parents report to me is is 180. That's the typical thing they say. It's a 180 degree turnaround. One mother who's got a media background like you. <laughs> said to me, um, you must be putting a doppelganger, a, a dead ringer, as we call it in Australia, in my car every afternoon. He looks like my son, but it's, it's, it's a different boy. You know? <laughs> he, he totally changed his attitude to uh, to school and, and learning. So we're very happy with those results so far. One plan we've got in place is to develop a real nexus with the nearest university, which happens to be the New, New South Wales University. It's really only a couple of tram stops away. Here in Sydney, we'd say it's the best STEM university in Australia, of course, because we wouldn't concede that to Melbourne. And it's a, it's a great uh, research and, and STEM university. And we want our boys to, um, to, to be involved in programs where undergraduate students at university, they might be doing engineering. I mean, often these people are you know, just brilliant at, at maths and, and different sciences. We want, we want our boys, once they get to a certain stage, probably by the time they're in, well, well, the middle school is year five to eight, but probably by the time they're either in year eight or year nine, we'll start that process where they're starting to sit down in a, in a more formal arrangement with university students and see what universities do. We'll go and go and look at research that, that the university is doing. So they're starting to um, understand um, the connection between what they're doing now and where they might end up in the future. What advice have you got? Because setting up a school is not everybody's go-to mm-hmm. when they're challenged. But there, in this country, we saw homeschooling increase, uh, I think it was across 2020, 2021, by 400%. It is still increasing. Now, I have interviewed another woman who is in the main system, but she also has resources for people who are opting to teach from home. But there are little, what I call, learning hubs beginning to form in this country. So if you are someone like, if you're in in New Zealand, Tim, you're frustrated, what advice would you give to parents on this side of the ditch in terms of either gathering other parents together or pulling together a curriculum and some learning in order to take your children into another direction? Well, going off what some of the experienced teachers have said to me, what was learned out of the, the pandemic was schooling from home just doesn't work. You know, sitting on a screen, having a classroom with multiple screens with these poor kids sitting at home, that, that's not a good model. Homeschooling, yeah, wonderful. There's some some great um, examples of people that have been homeschooled. I do wonder about the socialisation aspect, though. I, I think I think that's a, a hurdle that then has to be jumped later on in life. And that I, I don't know enough sociologically about whether that is insurmountable in some cases or not. But um, I think people that are homeschooling that are in a in an area should should be talking to each other. They should be um, forming a collegiate approach to this and, and trying to come up with 
common curriculum interpretations that, that suit their particular ethos. You never know. I mean, maybe it's possible to just to get a school started. In in Australia, there's been schools started on the, on the uh, fringes of Melbourne and Sydney in recent years um, with the Christian ethos. There's um, one in the planning, which is which is going to be an independent Catholic school called the Sir John Henry Newman um, School in Brisbane. Um, that's probably two or three years away. It's horses for courses. In our case, a building became available that used to be a school that stopped being a school in about 1991. It was used for another purpose, and then it became vacant. So we went and approached the landlord and said, "Well, hey, can we can we lease that school off you on?" On friendly terms and get a school going again. And as it all panned out, we were able to do that. We're we're in a, an established part of Sydney. Sydney's a, you know, quite a big city, and um, we're not on the fringe by any measure. We're we're in a, an old part of Sydney. I've heard of examples in overseas. I've heard, heard an example in Sao Paulo in 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 Brazil, where um, a very old traditional school. I think it was run by an order of nuns or something, or maybe priests. It was one of these beautiful old schools, but it you know, the population had moved on. There weren't any young families there anymore. The church, I believe, ultimately just put the site up for auction. And this group of families got together and they just passed the hat around. They, you know, some of them were quite inventive financially. And they turned up the auction. And the last thing they expected was that they would buy it. But they bought a school <laughs> and uh, started a school in this beautiful classical old situation but very much in the same vein as what we're talking about, where they wanted a, a traditional liberal arts approach. They wanted a, a strong Christian ethos coming through the school in a, in a place where the church couldn't offer that anymore. It's really horses for courses, you know. Yeah. It, it, you just have to be creative, inventive, and somewhat opportunistic. I think. What denomination do you... What denomination uh, do you... Hartford College is, is an independent um, Catholic boys' school. Uh, we're not part of the Catholic system, so we teach the Catholic religion in a way that's very complementary with everything else that's going on. I mean, the, mm. the Catholic Christian faith is very much part of the Western story. So I don't think I don't think there's um, a great needs to be a great degree of debate about that. But we're open to anyone. So we're we're very sort of clear that on the religion side, to, to the extent that religion's taught, they'll get that that traditional Catholic teaching, which we hasten to say is complementary with everything else that's being taught. So if the parents don't like that, well, then they probably aren't a great fit because it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if, if, if one of them's um, Muslim and the other one's uh, Caledonian. Um, if, if they're open to what's being taught, great. You know, we want that symbiotic relationship. But if they're, not, if they're not open to some aspect of what is being taught at, at um, the school, that's really part of what we try and go through with every set of parents, we sort of try and say, look, this is what we're, we're teaching. Um, we hope that that works for you. And, it's in, you know, we think it's in the best interest of your boy. Religion is very much a thing, an aspect of freedom. I think um, religion or faith is not true unless it's, it's freely adopted. So a boy who's got no Christian background is most welcome at our school. If he decides to embrace Christianity, to some degree, that's his choice. You know, it's, it's a totally free thing that he may or may not do whilst he's at school or he may do that 70 years later. <laughs> I've done a lot of interviews uh, with educators, both within the Christian, uh, independent Christian space 
on this show and also too with um, pastors. And I mean, I'm an agnostic, but I strongly believe the values instilled by Christianity are just as important, like as you said, like philosophy and history. They are part of the fabric that make up a civilized Western society. So having a Christian foundation is obviously, a, a, to me, very logical within a school or a faith-based um, spine of a school. And I can understand now why having parents so actively involved would be crucial in making this work because if you're not deferring uh, yourself into an integrated status with the state or with the federal level, you you rely, don't you, on that parent-teacher, school-teacher, board-teacher relationship in order to make this work. Yeah. So it's very much a community. Yeah, um, I gives the school an extra dimension and there's many different faith-based schools in Sydney, many, many different types um, and they often seem to work well. I'm aware of a, um, a school you probably describe it as more evangelical, you know, Protestant Christian in the western suburbs of Sydney where there's a huge Indian population. So they're coming from a, a Hindu background, most of them. But the, the that particular part of the demographic loves this school because they see it as the best school in their area, it's offering an education that, that tries to develop the whole person. You know, the religion's not a problem for that. No, exactly. So if people that want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing at Hartford mm-hmm. uh, and maybe potentially emulate that across here, how do they find you? Where do they get that information from? Um, the, the website is <clears throat> hartfordcollege.nsw.edu.au. So if you don't have time to write that down, just uh, Google Hartford College, Sydney. I'm sure you'll find us. Um, there's quite a lot of information there. Please jump on to our, um, our uh, email list. Uh, just subscribe to the email list and you'll get a, a regular communication. Sometimes it's a message of, uh, which goes to liberal arts and, and philosophy. Other times it's a message about an event this, this weekend coming. We've actually got a, a wonderful speaker called Dr. Karen Bolin, who has written a number of books um, about education, more in terms of what she describes as virtue ethics. I, I call that really good habits. <laughs> She's a guest speaker. We, that's, there's a symposium with three great educators, uh, Dr. Andy Mullins, Dr. Tim Wright, who was principal of Shaw, one of the big GPS schools uh, with an Anglican tradition in Sydney. Um, he's speaking at that symposium too this Saturday. So there's we've got events like that on. Yeah, please get in touch. Um, send us send us an email. More than happy to um, to share knowledge, get jump on a you know video call. We've actually got a advertisement at the moment out for a principal for the school. So we're looking for a long term principal. The principal we have now, wonderful Experienced educator Frank Monagle, he uh, he won't be with us for you know for like the ten year horizon. So that's why we're um, looking for one of those rare liberal arts uh, imbued leaders. Um, so if there's one around in New Zealand, um, I'd had to poach that person off you, but um, <laughs> just give us a call. <laughs> I was just going to say that we're booking the first plane ticket out. Um, you better be careful. Yeah. Uh, hey, look, it's been an utter delight. Thank you for giving up your time today. I've been talking to Tim Mitchell from Hartford College in Sydney. 
If you want to have more information, I'm going to make sure that that website is given to our wonderful Liz at inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you have any comments, make sure you send those along to 2057. More to come here on Celtic Culture, including my mate Marty up next with Media Matters. And then, of course, we've got the Woke Word of the Week. So stay around. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them with us via email to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us to 2057. That's 2057. If you want to hear more of my educational content, make sure you tune in to both interviews I've done with Kelly Valudos from The Art Education. Both of these can be found at realitycheck.radio. Just click the replays page. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Kelter Culture with Marie and this is Media Matters with Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Oh, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We had such a good time together in Papamar doing it together last week. It was it actually was so nice to be sitting next to each other. Yeah. With it's our more natural, isn't it? Just much more natural. Our our mountain of newspapers, because there was a lot of newspapers. <laughs> And it was great. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. So we had a great time last week, which was awesome. And of course, Mrs. Marty and Mr. Yeah, Mr. Marie, Mr. Mr. Marty, um, Mrs. Marty, rather. It was great. Oh, the the Papadopoulos was awesome. Um, the Mount was lovely. So I, can't, I have to say, lovely school holiday break. So yeah, thank good. you, thank you for the hospitality. And one of the things you've also gotten back in the saddle with is writing some columns, which we mentioned. And after our discussion on Media Matters last week, you extrapolated on that into a column, which is now up on the website under backslash news, realitycheck.radio backslash news. Good response? Oh, yeah, there has. Well, it's, you know, Kiwis are kind of always a bit backwards and coming forwards about opinions that might be controversial. But, I mean... I kept a careful eye on uh, the likes on Facebook and the comments. And so the comments um, against it, the, well, there's one comment against it underneath the actual article, which was from a, uh, I just had a look at her Facebook profile, a, a Green Party lady with a rainbow. You know, she actually, it's worth reading her comment because it. Uh, well, ups to her for actually. Reading it, like coming and reading the yeah. column. And, it's uh, difficult she, to know how she got what she said out of it. This is absolutely dangerous and horrible. Time you had a reality check and understood that your words are poison to so many of us. Go and do something useful like volunteering for the Red Cross. Well, I thought what I was doing was useful because I think, you know, what I was talking about in that column was quite a missing bit of the puzzle. And it certainly wasn't anti-Maori. It was hey, you fellas need to do better to Māori leadership. And it was calling them out on basically um, having a, a bit of a pick around what returning to a traditional Māori societal structure might look like. And I think it's a missing bit of the puzzle because it never feels right to me, this idea of Kiwis being anti-Māori, because it doesn't fit with what I know about how we get on. And we get on good. Mm generally. You know, we've got to talk about the cultural differences. And when you get really down to it with Māori friends and you say to them, hey, you know, you know what a lot of Pākehā aren't happy about with Māori? Is their different opinions on or different attitude to property rights, say. Pākehā might be appear stingy to Māori or, or cold. And unless we talk about that stuff, we can't get through it. And when we've got iwi leaders and uh, the government 
basically growing like cancer between us and, and trying to be an intermediary. That's what's driving the division mm. in, in society that we're seeing. I covered breakfast yesterday and one of the clips that I pulled out was Dylandi. And I deliberately chose the section in the clip because she talked about actually some of the elements of that class and hierarchical system in Māoridom, which which you right. covered in your column, yeah, and and about the language. So we were discussing language. So do go back and check that out on the replays because I think she just summed it up beautifully. And she is the voice, her and Karina Shields, these are the voices that within the Māori framework, current modern Māori framework, are not being heard. They're being dismissed, you know. So, oh, auntie, go back to go back to the coast, auntie. We don't want to hear from you. You know, you're not in the uh, the the inner circle of this new sort of political rangatira, self-imposed rangatira that seem to have been popping up. Yeah, I think you're right. So, the column is available at realitycheck.radio/news. So, do have a look at that. We also got some uh, feedback via the text machine. As well, yeah. listening to Marie and Marty discuss the science curriculum and in relation to the Māori wisdom. Have you heard about the research Lincoln University and lecturer Greg Clydesdale is doing on the level of knowledge where Māori got to prior to European settlement? Whilst at one point Māori were world leaders with technology, particularly in astronomy and navigation, they began to fall behind as soon as Copernicus had glass lenses in around the 1400s. So basically, if we were using Māori science, we're literally stuck in the Stone Age medieval maybe in the enlightenment ish could be interesting interview with him she's wendy so thanks for that wendy i mean we're going to sort of have a little dig into that and have a look but we're starting to get people engaged with the content which is really important and i think this might be your same commenter uh, that just went seriously please educate yourself about um te tiriti o waitangi now what this commenter doesn't know is you and i and mrs marty and mr marie have actually in the last couple of years done a lot of work in that space mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why sometimes we do our opinions are quite formed and we're quite strong on them isn't because we're just reading what is on Facebook and social media. We have actually done a bit of a dive and we have looked into a whole bunch of elements within Māori culture outside of our own lived experience, but also our own sort of way of knowing and knowledge and how we were raised. And we've spent time on Marae and we've gone to Hui and we're not just plucking the stuff out of the air. We we have checked it out and we've spent uh, a good amount of time continuing to learn. And I don't know about you, Marty, but I learn something new all the time and it's yeah, an evolving well, you, thing. You've got to it's be about... open to change your mind. And the people who have changed my mind most about Māori issues are Māori friends, mm. you know. Uh, and but, but also, I mean, I talk about opportunity cost with, with government a lot and I, I watch what iwi leaders are, are strutting and pontificating about. And I always think, you know what? If I were a Māori leader, I would be most concerned that decile one schools, which are, you know, often quite high proportionately in in Māori students, have a 3% pass rate of basic reading and numeracy tests. 3% after 10 years. That would be my hot button. That and reducing the amount of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which of course is not confined to Māori, but is a major problem for the tutua. Just seems like such a distraction. And as I've said 
before. Women thought the Rockefellers and the CIA were doing them a big favor for sponsoring feminism, but what they were sponsoring was division and demoralization of their most likely opponents. And I think all this, you colonizers, any decision about uh, this country has to be able to be vetoed by Maori leadership, which sort of puts you in a, in a lower position relative to us. That's designed to disillusion people and stop them fighting for their country as it slowly dissolves in a, just a soup of Marxism and finance mm. and big corporate interests. Well, I tell you, though, who sees it definitely through a rose-coloured lens is Shane Tapo. Oh, Shane Tapo. Shane Depoe, he had a rather interesting column this week, and it was funny, before we started, Marty and I, he held up his bits of paper, and it appears that you and I have used a lot of highlighter on this, both of us. Mm. He's a good party man, Shane. Say what you like, Shane. Yeah, it's really interesting, because to do the breakfast show yesterday, I went back through a lot of our old media matters. You know, Shane crops up quite frequently, and there has been an evolution the closer to the election that we get, the more partisan we're becoming closer to the election. And the headline for Shane Tapo and his column in the Sunday, Sunday Herald, Māori ministers have a proud record, he says. The ugly side of this election campaign reared its head again this week when Christopher Luxon told an audience in Nelson that if, if they wanted an end to the bilingual signs and the use of te reo Māori by government agencies, they should vote national. Make no mistake, we're becoming more tolerant and a multicultural society, and that's a good thing. I'm glad he's noticed that, Shane, because we have actually... I think, been there for a wee while. Unfortunately, every time we make some advances towards being in a more inclusive society, that celebrates our Māori culture through things like Matariki, te matatini, and using te reo Māori in public settings, there is someone to kick us back against it. A bit reactionary, I thought. Well, word reactionary, he actually uses the word mm, reactionary. He does. And reactionary, you've got to remember, it's a very important Marxist word which um, describes someone who does not want glorious revolution for make socialist utopia. And there is a gaggle of right-wing political parties all too keen to try and grab those reactionary votes. And, mm. that, and, and the interesting thing about all of this, and I think, look, we're going to have to buckle up and strap in people for the next 90 days because this is how it's going to roll. We're going to see all of this tit for tat. And I have to admit, I think, I'm starting to feel a bit weary about it already, and we're going to dive into the piece with Winston a little later on. But Sometimes just wake up sort of staring into space, holding your passport. <laughs> oh, you know I'm so already there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to – yeah. The other thing in that Shane Tapoe article, and it's something I see all the time, is this, this kind of wishing for the older, more conservative New Zealanders to die. It's kind of creepy because, as I've said, I can't wait for these old people to die, you know, with their regressive attitudes. It's it's a short hop and one historically that people have made time and time again to, I can't wait for these people to die. I'm going to have to speed it up. And, well, he, and it's kind of creepy. It is creepy. And he says here why Māori have become the whipping boy. Why are we being used by the opposition to bludgeon the government? Squarely in the sights of the anti-Māori campaign is the Labour Māori caucus. Whether it's scurrilous rumour-mongering or attacks on family members, things are out of bounds uh, when it comes to Pākehā politicians and fair game when it comes to Māori leaders. I'm sorry, that's gaslighting, Shane. 
John Key was widely uh, attacked by members kids. of the Māori caucus. They were creepy interest in his kids. Yeah, he was fair game for a long time. They've had cracks at Seymour for years, and I have to admit Seymour appears to be Teflon on that front. And then they like to have a crack at Winston from time to time, I think because as far as they're concerned, he's not Māori or even Uncle Shane. They have a go at him as well. So that's a little bit of memory holding and selective thinking on his part. The savage attacks on Nanaia Mahuta and her family by Simeon Brown, enabled by some of the media, were unlike anything I've seen in politics. There is never any evidence of wrongdoing, but it didn't stop Brown and it led to the disgusting racist attacks from the likes of Groundswell. Nationals' leadership should have stopped Brown's baseless racist attack on a strong Wahine Māori leader and a distinguished Māori family. Instead, they encouraged it. But there was no reference to what that... I've got to get a T-shirt that says Labour's Māori caucus, putting the male in Māori. Look, to be honest, I can't even remember what those attacks were from Simeon Brown. Can you remember that? Oh, yeah. It was was basically Pine Henare. His wife got half a million dollars in government contracts, and uh, he'd declared it back in 2018. But again, you know, you often find with these political power couples, you know, whether it's Julianne Genter and her husband or her boyfriend, sorry, partner, partner, you know, who's got some consultancy that got a couple of million bucks for cycle reports or something Mm. like that. Or Nanaya Mahuta's uh, husband, Husband. you know, who who, who got um, all that doc money. The objection to it is that it kind of just underscores that it's a big club and you're not in it. And I think that's where the resentment comes from. And as I said in my column, the resentment a lot of people have towards iwi leaders is their attitude to uh, park our taxpayers is very much like the attitude that chiefs used to have towards slaves. And uh, we're a proud people with a history of abolishing slavery and opposing tyrants. And uh, we don't like being talked to like that. Yeah, we don't. And Shane is saying here, you know, all of these attacks on Nanaia, it's unfounded. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, she leaves that barn door wide open. New Zealand pledges almost $19 for wetlands at the risk of climate change in Asia. Yes, you heard this right, people. I only saw this in digital, and this was Mr Marie that dug this out and sent it to both of us. New Zealand is giving almost $19 million to help people living in wetland areas in Asia to adapt to climate change and avoid displacement. $19 $19 million to Asia. Just chucking it round. I, uh, you know what a good OIA request would be? Would be on any of the many overseas trips, did any Labour ministers ever ask the leaders or officials of any of the top five countries that pollute rivers and oceans with plastic to stop dumping plastic in the rivers and oceans? And if not, well, where does that leave us with our paper bags breaking open and dropping our groceries on the ground? It is just ridiculous. And I mean, $19 million, guys, if you just want a a comparative of what it will buy, because of course everything's more expensive these days. Uh, Just from a health perspective, $19 million will get you around 3,800 cataracts operated on. 3,800 cataracts, that will clear the cataract waiting list like the entire mm. entire cataract waiting list for the year, that gone. And, but you know what? 
we're going to send it to Asia instead. That's what knots my knickers about all of this. He then goes on to to do a a laundry list of things that he claims that it's Māori MPs are responsible for, including 64,000 more Māori in work in total of 281 more people working. I actually think the whole worker shortage might have had more to do with that shame than anything, but just saying. 5,000 young people have helped off benefits and into work through Manamahi. I don't know that scheme, so I can't question that. The other one was is the huge $7 an hour increase in the minimum wage that's put nearly $12,000 a year after tax into the pockets of workers. Yeah. You've got to look at the billions of dollars, the tens of billions of dollars that have been borrowed and just splashed around. I mean, we've given some examples of it on the show, but they've just opened the tap on, on that. And, you know, if, if you increase government debt by $100 billion or whatever it was, I had a look for it this morning. I couldn't really find what the public debt was uh, in, the, in the short time I spent looking for it, but I understand it's over $100 billion. Have you got an idea, a fix on it? No, I know it's huge. If you're going to turn on the tap like that, and to the extent that you actually create inflationary pressure, and there's another thing we were sent this morning saying 77% of the inflationary pressure is actually um, domestically generated, it's because the government's printing money and spending it. That's where the inflation's coming from. If you're going to do that, you're going to have some outcomes that you can talk about. It's amazing to me how they can spend that much money and achieve so little but they achieve something at the cost of our kids have got to play it back on top of whatever else. Yeah, I was a bit grumpy this week uh, with, with the news, and we've talked about that beforehand. It's, it's You sort of go through it, and as you say, in the, in the lead-up to the election, it's going to get more and more extreme. Yeah, it will go. Um, just directly above the Shane Tapo piece, of course, is Paula Bennett, who um, is asking people to stop being mean about her friend Lux. Uh, and I think that's is, this Did is... She she called him, I think she just called him Lux, or did she call him Luxie? No, I think it was just Lux. But anywho, again, a lot of this is, there's, I think we're going to see a lot of playing the man, not the ball stuff between now and the election, and we're just going to, to deal with that. And speaking of uh, playing the man, not the ball, I talked briefly about this with Cam yesterday. I wanted to dive in it with you. Five pages Five pages, Sunday Star Times, the first five pages, yeah. which were probably, if you got the Sunday Star Times, it was about the only thing worth reading. Cry Freedom was the headline in crowded rooms on the campaign trail. Winston Peters seems more willing than other mainstream politicians to hear out conspiracy theories. But can he ride his freedom wave all the way to the beehive? Uh, courtesy, courtesy of uh, we Charlie Mitchell and uh, Katie Kenny. So there was somebody at the Napier meeting that was here the other weekend, which I didn't get to because I was up playing a yeah. bit of with you. Just an overview with this piece to begin with. A, the, the interesting thing around this, and Cam brought it up yesterday because he sort of took Charlie to task over it once it dropped on Sunday night. Yeah, Charlie claims he'd written all of this piece prior to Cam's Crunch Thursday interview with Winston. However, there are quotes in there verbatim from that interview. So I suspect that Charlie did sort of pop in and check in and Reality Check Radio did warrant mention. They're talking about people attending these meetings. Winston is packing out these halls up and down the country and the numbers are only getting bigger. Uh, He's had several hundred in uh, Napier. I know he had over 700 in Tauranga this past weekend. And a lot of people from 
the freedom community are attending these meetings. The, the self-proclaimed uh, freedom community. They're the all these little slight smears and... <laughs> yeah, and the, but there's also a lot of people in here that are undecided voters. I'm still mm. an undecided voter. Now, the reason I say this is one of the questions quoted in this article, I know who asked it. And mm. I actually contacted them and said, I feel like your question's only been half quoted in this article, and it was. Is this the um, another question came from someone who claimed to be a medical specialist? Yeah, and I can tell you right now, there's no claim about it. They are currently a medical specialist working in the system. Yeah. Well, in the private system, but they are, a, yes, they are a medical specialist. There is a certain issue I cannot talk to you about because it doesn't fit with the narrative from the podium of truth, he said, noting that he feared being deregistered if he said more. I think medical professionals are being censored, one woman added, how are you going to protect it? Now, what they didn't say for the rest of that question is he did say, how are you going to approach the level of medical censorship, particularly in medicine, where people like me can't speak honestly because yeah. of fear of deregistration? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've they left I've, that part I've of the question that, I've out. Said that before that was one of the most pernicious parts of the whole story, and it never warranted a mention. Was dear leader basically sending doctors, nurses, health professionals a letter saying, "If you step out of line, uh, we're going to deregister you." Okay, so you better say what we want. Then a couple of short weeks later saying, actually, you know, the best person you can talk to about this is your, gen is your GP because they know you and we've threatened them. Mm. So they're going to say what we want them to say. And, and that seemed so cynical and so sinister. And yeah, I think it warranted more, yeah, a bit more examination, mm. a bit more sunlight. And I mean, Winston is prepared to, to take a look at these issues. He has always been a nationalistic politician. I mean, it's in the title of his party, for goodness sake, oh. New Zealand First. Yeah. So if it directly relates to New Zealand, that is what he'll be looking at. And this is the one thing I think Charlie did get right, is most of the politically homeless have rejected in some form by all parties currently in Parliament. New political parties intending to channel the energy have faced internal struggles and thus far have struggled to break through. With three months until Election Day, some are turning to New Zealand's most experienced politician, who has shown he is one of the few willing to hear him out. It is not only reflected in the people attending the meetings, a group called Voters United set up to mobilise these potential voters towards one party on an election day released periodic and in brackets unscientific, there's that little jab again, polls. In April, New Zealand First received 11% support. This week it received 26%, the highest of any party. I'm still undecided, so I'm going to put that out there for people. I'm still casting around but what I did do is because of course there was another poll out a couple of days ago and what we are seeing is with the two major parties with the two feeder minor parties below them so National Enact, Labour and the Greens all we're seeing between those four parties and between the two of each of them is just they're moving the deck chairs on the Titanic basically. Yeah, We've seen a dip in the last poll, you've seen a dip from Labour, which have essentially has gone directly to the Greens, directly attributable with the captain's call that Chippy made while he was away about dumping the wealth tax, which I think came as a bit of a bolt from the blue. Oh, Squealer. Oh, Squealer really Robinson, wanted yeah. He wanted and, to get it from out in the trough. Exactly, and they'd done all that work on it. So I think 
there is a portion of those progressive Labour voters uh, who have gone and jumped across to the Greens because, of course, that's okay because Marama, Marama is going to give back $350 million of land back to Māori or wow. housing, that's, whatever that's, it is. I've got a – I mean, you've see, seen my my house. I've got a pretty small – it's less than certainly less than quarter of an acre. I've got 35 fruit trees on it. You know, I've got a whole lot of berries, whole lot of vegetables. There's no grass out the back. You can have all the land you want. And, I mean, I've had jobs um, driving around farms on the East Coast. You know, some farms look better than others. You know, some farms have pretty scraggy-looking stock and degraded rivers, and it's what you do with land. You know, there's no no point in focusing on just getting land. It's how it's it's looked after that counts. Mm. They'd be better off spending that money on developing Maori land so, you know, ordinary Maori could maybe start building villages on it. Mm. Communities. And some... Living on it. There are some hapu that do that. You know, there are, right. it depends from hapu to hapu. Yeah. One of the things I thought I'd do, with because there are so many polls now and we're going to be polled out until the wazoo, is I thought I'd have a little dive around to see if there's some trends in those numbers. And the, there are some pretty macro trends, right? We're seeing support for both Labour and National has stagnated. Mm. It fluctuates a little bit up and down and those fluctuations are directly reflected in act in the Greens. But I've been looking at, at the other end of the spectrum, the ones outside of the political tent that Charlie is sort of surmising, what about those people? Now, at the moment with all polling, and I went back about six months, the polling numbers sitting outside parties that currently reside in Parliament roughly averages around 8%, which bears true because in the 2020 election, there were 7.8% of votes that got unallocated to parties Mm. outside of the spectrum. This is party votes. So that is about right. It's the don't know number. The don't know number is quite large. The don't know number sits anywhere between 12 and 18%, depending on the poll that you look at. So if if we average that, say, to 15% of people don't know, you've got eight that don't want one of the current well, and that and that's not including Tamata Māori. So this is everything outside of Parliament currently. So if you're looking at eight, looking at Parliament outside currently, you've got fifteen roughly uh, for a don't know. You throw that together, that's twenty three percent. That is nearly one quarter of all New Zealanders are not happy with the consensus. Nearly one in four not happy with the consensus and don't quite yeah. know where they're going to go. And when you're looking at Labour at thirty percent. I just think it's very, very arrogant to write off people like Winston Peters. He only needs to coalesce one and a half to two percent of that vote now to get over the line without an electorate seat, which is no small thing. I mean, generally, I, think, yeah. I don't think any party's got in just over the five percent, have they? They've always had an electoral seat. No, no the Greens got in with with um, without uh, seats until Chloe Swarbrick. No, 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 Jeanette Fitzsimons. Sorry, I, oh, yeah. I disagree. She she won Coromandel. That's how they got in initially. Really? I'm, I'm, sure, all, I'm sure. I'm almost certain on that. Some, actually, if somewhat Tane, we need Tane. Where's Tane when we need yeah. him? Because he knows that. I'm that's almost certain that they had an electorate seat. Well, I do know that uh, the trend is generally for New Zealand First to come up as the, as we approach the election and, and the major parties to come down. And, uh, you know, I know through my little networks that um, they're looking at some candidates that will bring 
some of those votes in that uh, are people who are horrified at the lack of disagreement within Parliament. You know, I mean, I think whatever you think about vaccination and bodily autonomy and informed consent, I think most people could agree it, it, it's good to have some dissenting views in Parliament. We don't have an Alex Antic like Australia does. We, we don't have that one or two voices that will say, hey, I, I disagree, the devil's advocate almost. There's this sickly consensus that I think a lot of New Zealanders, whatever their views on, on COVID or the World Economic Forum or anything like that, I, I think it makes them uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it. I think it does, and and it's interesting you say that because that article focused really heavy on what Charlie would call vaccine conspiracy. Yeah. Okay. Now you and I have said this time and time and time again, and we tend not to talk about this because there's so many other things to talk about. So let's park the good page in a bit that Charlie dedicated to that. Let's park that off to one side. And then they have a little jab around, again, still around vaccines and still around vaccination rates. So they they dedicate essentially the whole back end of the article to that is the issue for, for these voters, which, again, I think long voter draw, rather. It, some voters it is. But for many voters, it's not. For many voters, they're wanting to vote around actual freedom you know, like mm. not being illegally locked down like they were to begin with and laws being made retrospectively to, to be jammed through. They don't want to have our rights removed like they were, like the digital vaccine passports introduced without consultation to the point that Amnesty International said, hey, New Zealand, you know, that's not cricket. They want New Zealand to be looked after first. They don't want to see $19 million going off to wetlands in Asia. They want to see $19 million spent on dropping the health waiting lists in New Zealand, fixing the freaking potholes. Finally, people are going, oh, you're national going on the fixing oh, yeah, potholes. I mean, Features, not benefits. Well done, national. Yes, fix the potholes. Yeah, you're getting there. Get, I mean, you know, 19, $19 million for wetlands in Asia. Yeah, okay. For me, the big thing is $70 billion this decade on Paris Accord commitments, and not just our Paris Accord commitments, but the additional one that James Shaw's been flying around the world begging for New Zealand to be subject to on the basis of our agriculture. I don't think a lot of Kiwis understand that. No. We didn't have to put agriculture in our emissions. We we were exempt from it. That little weasel has been flying around the world begging for New Zealand economy to be dismantled because, I mean, that's what Marxists like. Mm. No, they you, do. Know, and, you, and... You, you make everyone poor, then the equity. Yeah, that so, sniveling little parotted gland. Uh, so, yeah, I, I get, if, if any Pākehā says to me, oh, treaty, you know, gravy train, it's like, hey, that's about $3.5 billion, and we've torn ourselves to bits as a country over it. These guys are wanting to spend $70 billion, both National and Labour are all for it, neither of them have, this decade, $70 billion, 30 times the total treaty settlements. Mm. And we, we, we're not allowed to read any opposition to it in the paper. Mm. That, if you're looking for the low-hanging fruit, that's it. Mm. As Kiwis too, we've always loved the fact that, you know, we feel that we punch above our weight. 
the reality of it is, is that we don't need to punch above our weight. And I think we need to make sure that we put the work in down in this country before we, as you said, try and make ourselves look good on a world stage and yeah, on a global stage. spend $1 billion improving the quality of our rivers, then the oceans around New Zealand will come alive. Then you'll have something like 70% of the oxygen comes from seaweed, right? You'd improve that. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea that we borrow that money, we get we get the bankers to print it as debt that our descendants are going to have to pay back. We send it to corrupt developing nations with nuclear weapons programs that are still building coal-fired power stations via corrupt carbon markets where 65 to 90% of transactions are fraudulent to have zero effect on reducing a trace gas, which is only 3% anthropogenic. Only 3% of CO2 is human in origin that's vital to all life. It won't even do that. The fact that we're not allowed to talk about it in those terms bothers me mm. a lot. Yeah, it, it does. It does. So that piece, Sunday Star Times, uh, it was also online without a paywall, so you can go and check that out. Again, we're going to talk a lot about elections leading into the election. All of us will. I know you're covering it in political panel. We, we talk about it here from a media perspective. I just hammer home for those of you who are in the undecided camp, so I'm part of the sort of 15-ish percent. Remember, you do have two votes. Mm. Okay, so you, you are able to cast your vote in different directions if you so choose. I think that is something very, very important that we need to remember as well. I think that that will allow us to potentially vote with hearts and heads. Again, I'm still completely undecided. What I do love about that, though, is it says to me that people like Charlie Mitchell and the other lassie, are li they're listening, they're aware. Winston is starting to make inroads mm. into consciousness that there is a really decent number of voters out there who are engaging to actually hear what they say and are looking for somebody that will at least represent them. Well, I'll tell you the other thing is that New Zealand First has gone after some of the candidates that got spat out of the Democracy NZ fiasco. And I personally know a lot of those people, and I know them to be people of considerable talent and considerable knowledge and considerable integrity. And if he's talking to those people, they're going to put a bomb under him in terms of his knowledge about what's going on. And and when you are around, I guess, the people who are in, in that camp, you know, that are so, so derisively described by those hacks, when you know them and you know how much more intelligent they, they are than, I mean, I've spoken to doctors who've sort of said, oh, you know, the Ministry of Health tend not to put us crook on this stuff, whereas the doctors who are against it have read the peer-reviewed literature and they've they've done deep, deep dives. So I know which one I'd, I'd trust more, the one who's just listening to what the Ministry of Health is saying or the one who's doing their own thinking. And their it's own funny research. you should say that because one of the things that we discussed um, briefly was about fact-checking some of the numbers that Charlie had in that article. Uh, and now I know in terms of the excess deaths, they didn't not say that the excess deaths were not happening, but they brushed those off because it was David like, it's Singer okay, those excess deaths. No, it's okay, those excess deaths because they're old people. 
because yeah. their lives obviously are not worth anything. So yeah, if it was that, not young people as you'd expect. As you'd expect, mm, I think if we took the guy Hatchard would disagree with that. However, that aside, he obviously had other numbers. Now he would have submitted those numbers to the Ministry of Health uh, or submitted the requests to the Ministry of Health for his fact checking. The Ministry of Health has supplied that information back. Yeah. So people disagreeing with the Ministry of Health are contradicted. Yeah. By the Ministry of Health. There was a very interesting and you know, some data that came out on the disability figures out of the states. Did you see that graph where oh, you know, the Ed Dowd graph, the one that kind yeah. of looks like the Matterhorn and goes oh, it's, shoots it's, sorry, straight it's up? UK PIP clearances. Yeah, you're looking at monthly uh, PIP, very flat, only kind of a ten percent wavering from mm. 2016 2018 and a PIP clearance is like um a claim clearance isn't it it's the yeah when a claim has been settled or yeah it, it's accepted. flat flattish or just just very neatly conforming up and down to around this trend line which is flat right up until early 2021 and it just takes off like a rocket and so you you've got it going from so the percentage was around 25% and it's up to about a, it's 180%. Mm. That's not a, a blip. No. And those PIP clearances are going to be at a pretty stable ratio with deaths. Yeah. Look, only sort of time will tell with a number of these things. I did dig out. I did dig out. Where is it? Andrea Vance this week too sort of dived, everyone dived into politics this week. I mean, Heather Duplessis, and just quickly, she dived in, crash poll, a wake-up call for Labour. Uh, again, I was just doing those numbers. The biggest thing she highlighted was in terms of performance and the turmoil around that and the concern that Hipkins might have. Andrea Vance went one step further. Hipkins is determined to win at all costs, but is Labour's sole price in the battle of Chris versus Chris, something is off. Christopher Luxon's presentation problems have been wide, widely canvassed. Commentators have correctly diagnosed that he is the main reason the party isn't polling better. Robotic and prone to mistakes. He's what you get of chat GP'd a leader for the National Party. But equally strange is the, the characterization of Christopher Hipkins as some kind of political ingenue. This is the narrative Hipkins has weaved around himself, the boy from the hut who found himself Prime Minister, pinching himself after Jacinda Ardern's resignation. It's a meta-cliché that we in the media regularly default to. There it mm. is again in Beijing, the man more at home in the cosy club than in the Great Hall. The reality is so much more. Hipkins is complex, ambitious, and one of the most ruthless politicians we have. He's a scrapper, battle-hardened, from Labour's brutal nine years in opposition and following the fall of Helen Clark's government. Well, the worst bit is tutored by Trevor Mallard. He learnt the dark arts of politics under the shadow of arch-parliamentarian Jerry Brownlee and by watching John Key, who alternated charm and vicious real politic. I mean, I find the whole front of Ardern and Hipkins is just, oh, you know, I'm just... I like to eat sausage rolls and drink Diet Coke or, oh, you know, I've got anxiety and I want to be kind. It's it's so much more sinister than someone who just is blatantly has some tyrannical impulses, which both of them did. And he is vastly more ideological than the very carefully crafted persona. Yeah. 
goes to, you know. And people think, oh, you know, how's he going to hurt me? His little beady eyes and his little sausage roll eating tendencies. Well, yeah, just look at he was police minister when policing was softened. He was the education minister when all of those policies were put in place that have a very strong ideological bent. Then he moved. So what? He went to police, he went to education. Oh, hello, COVID. And then he was COVID minister. I mean, he... He is his, ambitious. His fingerprints are on all of the Everything. crap. Everything. He's saying yesterday's paper, Kiwis have had a guts full of people thinking the rules don't apply to them, and I've had a guts full as well. Well, it's taken you a while, hasn't it, to get to that point? Because while does retail crimes been, what, doubling? Yeah. The, the convictions are going down because you don't like the idea that maybe the the racial profile of some of the people doesn't suit your narrative. So you're willing to sacrifice hardworking retail business owners for your ideology. Mm. Too little, too late. Hipkins' policy bonfire was an attempt to reconnect with voters, but under his leadership, what was left of the party's traditional values has gone up in smoke. Arun won a landslide victory on a cautious centrist platform. Really, Andrea? Her government had a mandate to tackle the country's housing, climate and poverty crisis. Okay, more of that memory holling. The rise of radical progressive left, which represents only a minority of the population, but dominates Labour and Twitter, corrupted the party. Its values were a world apart from the values of the average voter. The party's public spending policies are failing, the healthcare service is crumbling, with doctors, nurses and other health workers overworked and struggling to make ends meet on low salaries. Schools, politics and universities are in a state of ruin, and soaring prices and painful interest rates have heightened inequality, yet last week Hipkins killed plans for the fairer tax system. Now, the thing is, is that he is part of that minority. And in this article, the media is part of it, because the next sentence is, Labour now remains trapped in the ideological comfort zone of low taxation. I don't think most Kiwis would agree that we're um, living in a comfort zone of low taxation. I can tell you right now, I've got a twitchy passport, just saying. Yeah, it it's not sustainable. It is not sustainable. It is not. And people are going to start to leave. I mean, I couldn't find the story. I, th- I thought it was in the weekend papers. It might have been in Friday's Herald Mark Ellis announcing that he is leaving yeah, this country. It was in, yeah, Hosking talked about it on ZB as well. Yeah, and, and he's off to Italy, and I think he'll be the first of many. I know that there are ones that the Zuru Toys crew, they, whilst they have a base in New Zealand, I can bet you dollars to donuts if you looked at any of those key business entrepreneurs in New Zealand who, who we proudly call as our Kiwi entrepreneurs, I'd love to know how many of them are actually tax residents mm. in New Zealand. Which well, means Stephen they... Joyce, I think you you didn't have this, did you? But, no, I didn't. Um, he excoriated, and it's just, you know, who would have thought Marxist student politicians you know, have never had a job that didn't involve moving up the conga line of suck holes, aren't good at managing an economy. All of their progress is based on incurring horrible debt. Hmm. at the cost of business. So, yeah, he was basically saying left-wing politicians seem to have no idea how the decisions that create wealth in this country are made. And, you know, there was recently that, you know, Chippy's, you know, mixing with the um, business community because he hasn't really got any business contacts. It's like, how do you do that? 
You must have gone to endless openings and things like that. You don't have any friends at all who aren't Marxist student politicians. That's okay. He's in it for you. Yeah. He's in it. I mean, there's a lot underlined in this. While left-wing pundits think they can pick on people with assets with impunity, the public realise how self-defeating that would be. And I think, you know, we've often said that. I mean, I'm I'm not super money-driven or super wealthy, but I understand how vital people who um, do build big businesses are to an economy. Mm. Their children resent them often, and they pay a heavy price for it. I mean, you know, with the business I've got, you know, you do go through a lengthy period where has cars of your staff looking better than your car, and you kind of start to make headway, and then you need a, a vital bit of capital equipment, and so you're back to buying groceries on the credit card. You know, there's a there's a long grind, and and if people don't think it's worth it, they'll go somewhere where it is worth it. Well, or, we haven't even dived into um, SMEs in this country, yeah. but both of us are, are people that our livelihood, we've been there for a long time, so small to medium enterprise. It has been systematically destroyed. Yeah. Well, he said, you know, he closes by saying political left in this country almost always ends up in the same place. High government spending, big fiscal deficits, inflation, domestic recession, big balance of payments deficit, a squeezed middle class, and more people leaving for a better life elsewhere. I'd say the difference in this time to previous times when, you know, elected a more conservative government to kind of clean up the mess is that Kiwis, especially young voters, have been through an education system that's just been slowly flooded with Marxism. And so critical thinking's been replaced by, well, what's the right thing to think? Or what do good people think? You want to be a good person, don't you? And that could, as it is in the States, you know, that could head off the corrective measure that could mean we ride it all the way down. Mm. The interview I've had just prior to this was with a chap called Tim Mitchell from Hartford College in New South Wales, and they have gone and created their own school in Sydney, and in inner Sydney, based around the traditional liberal arts and classic education for exactly those sorts of reasons. So parallel yeah. structures are beginning to appear certainly across there, and it was fascinating talking to him and just all of those foundations and the importance of those foundations, and the biggest thing with them is to create and it's a boys school to create young men who are critical thinkers to be able to formulate and help make these important decisions moving forward because as he said when they looked at a survey with CEOs a huge number of the top CEOs had uh, liberal arts educations around these classic western yeah. values the reason that aristocratic uh, families send their kids to to get those sort of educations mm. they give you a broad understanding of the sweep of time that's just not possible in a modern education system and I think also I mean you know another theme I picked up in the paper this week was particularly around women but it's also around Maori just this it's not your fault you know there's I started off by looking at Kitty Allen you know like Allen added it's been a really tough time for me lately and I've really appreciated all the aroha that's come my way it's helped me to get through and I know I can come out of this a stronger and better person I mean, there's the lady, you know, and this is, I'm not going to go into this and, you know, use it for a political point, but the, we're going through this harrowing trial started this week. Um, that woman who's murdered her three young mm. children and is pleading insanity. Insanity. I actually went into a spy this week, you'll be proud to know. Jonah um, Hill, you know, there's been that brouhaha, ding, 
I haven't used we haven't used that word yet because he actually gave his um, girlfriend a list of things that he'd prefer she didn't do if she wanted to be his girlfriend. And it was just kind of like, don't show your ass on social media, please, you know. And it's, yeah, the lady who's writing it said, I actually snort, snort laughed when I read the toxic list of demands. And one of my favorites was friendships with women who are un, in unstable places and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or coffee or something respectful. So what he's saying is, don't go out to the club with your home mates. You know, I guess if you're wanting to head off trouble at the past, it's actually not a bad point. Mm. You know, you're a movie star, you're under under a bit of um, scrutiny. But yeah, the, this lady just really saw that as, you know, that setting of boundaries as being toxic rather than someone's right to say, hey, if you want to be in a relationship with me, I'd rather you didn't do some of the stuff you've been doing. There was an article on this ex-SAS soldier who's living in a caravan and suffering mm. from... I did say that. Yeah, suffering from basically a brain injury that that's the the veterans affairs are just it's not on their radar, but it's a sort of brain injury you get when you're ex- exposed to multiple explosions each day. Mm. You know, because these guys are doing breaching doors and training and stuff. This guy is sort of saying he isn't looking for sympathy. He wants a system that works for him and other veterans who have served in modern conflicts. So you sort of contrast that with this whole series of excuse-making and lack of personal accountability for women, and it's deliberate. Did you see the other article in the Herald on Sunday that ties into that one? Because I think that one was, is that also Herald on Sunday or Sunday Star Times, the one about the Afghanistan was, veteran? Uh, Weekend Herald. Weekend Herald. So on the Herald on Sunday, the following day, uh, an exclusive Sawida Gardner's final act could improve veterans' care. And Sawida Gardner, who passed away last year, he had put in, because he knew that it would have the case would happen posthumously, but he was talking to somebody else who uh, he died of a brain tumour. Shortly after the di- diagnosis, Parata, which is Hekia Parata, who is the widow of Wida Gardner, visited by a long-standing friend, Ross Hinemar, with whom he had served in Vietnam, um, Hemona, sorry, Hemona, who served from 62 until retiring as a major in 1982, is a Kaumatua highly regarded for his legal focus on veterans' issues. When Hemona visited, he encouraged Garner to make a claim that the malignant neoplasm of the brain and the glioblastoma that would claim his life was also related to the military service. So they they did this on the basis of the brain tumour claim accepted by Veterans Affairs in 2013. Before the new law was passed, that case summarised by the board and a barrister Christopher Griggs, an international expert in military law, was a precedent that glioblastoma and Vietnam veterans might be related to their service due to the exposure of Agent Orange. And having dealt with Veteran Affairs for other medical things in my former life, Veteran Affairs is like any other government department, whether it be ACC, in fact, they're even more strident, ACC, any of those others, if you're trying to get a claim sorted for a veteran through veteran mm. affairs, A, it takes forever, and B, it's most likely declined. And they're running down the clock, so more people die, so their exposure's less. I, I, uh, Big time. One of the worst sleeps I ever had was uh, staying on a marae with Korean and Vietnam veterans uh, near Takaha to see Willie Apiata get his VC. They invited me along with them. And uh, I, I'm really close friends with a, a lot of the vets in, on the East Coast. And uh, 
they're incredible people. Uh, mm. But man, they scream and sound like they're choking all night long. And if you're in a room with about 40 of them, yeah, it's not a good sleep. No, so I can, I can imagine. only imagine what it's like for them and their families. Now, looking at the time, we've gone on quite quite a long time. What else have you got on your list before I get to my happy story? I had a funny week this week. Normally, I can kind of, you know, go through, pull out some data. whole thing just kind of washed over me a little bit. So, yeah, no, get, let's get to your happy uh, place and, and chop out the worst excesses of my, um, my crossness, maybe. <laughs> the story I've got is, uh, the nice story, is Harry McCleary clan find a perfect likeness. So they've been doing a, a lookalike competition. Say hello there to the real-life Harry McCleary clan. Last month it was announced the children's book characters were celebrating a massive anniversary and the Kiwis were invited to bring their own canine pals to the party. To mark 40 years since the terrier first went out the gate, offer a walk, a special anniversary hardback edition of Dame Lindley Dodd's Harry McCleary from Donaldson's Dairy is being published. And some very special pups will get their paws on a copy. Publisher Penguin Random House put a call out for Kiwi dog owners to ask them to share photos of their furry pals that resembled Harry McCleary and his ragtag bunch of mates. Now the results are in, the winners are announced. With more than 1,600 submissions to choose from, they found it tricky to pick the winners. Thankfully, one special person was able to make the call, a dog herself. So they did that, and the winner for Hercules Morse was a dog called Butters from Auckland. He's a sleepy giant, looks just like the book character, and he is an English Mastiff who is a biological brother to our dog, Rufus. Oh, my gosh. Oh, fa- so Rufus's brother won... Um, Hercules Morse, as big as a horse. So there you go. Maybe you should have entered uh, your dog. Rufus, I actually saw the competition and I was going to enter Rufus and then, you know, life ensued, like this job and everything else. So I didn't get around to it. But I'm I've pleased s- that Rufus's brother won. So, yay. There was that hilarious outrage over someone had done up that book to be Harry McClary, Ram Raids a Dairy. Actually, speaking of books in the news yesterday morning, did you hear about Pauline Hanson's book in Australia? No. So no. she's put out a book. She's put out a book in Australia about the voice, you know, which is the vote. Right. Actually, and I think we need to get onto that potentially next week. I did pull out a clip for this week, but it's that's heating up. That yeah, I pulled out us. a clip too. Yeah. From any, I think we could probably pull out the same one. So, anywho, the um, Pauline Hanson has put out a book about what the, uh, the reasons why Australians should vote for the voice in the upcoming referendum, and it's a hundred pages, and they're all blank. And it's right. reached number two on the Amazon bestseller list for Australia. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's worth looking at all that stuff internationally. I saw, you know, Trudeau's got the same thing. And again, it, it's that point I made about women thinking Rockefellers and the CIA mm. were doing them a big favour. I think that could be something we can dive into for next week. Okay? Yeah. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll uh, do some reading. Hey, yeah, well, thanks, Marie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. As I said, if you've got any feedback for Marty and I, we'd love to hear it. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or 2057 is the text. And also topics too. We've actually had some really good uh, feedback across all of the counterculture shows. We've had people that for suggestions for interviews. There's been lots of different stuff uh, recommended and we really, really do enjoy that. So do uh, make sure you do it. Uh, You're back with political panel uh, this week. Friday, this yep. Friday, yeah. And then uh, you and I, we next week? I'm taking a break next week, yeah. Oh, I'm, so I'm, we're uh, following week. Yep. And I'll uh, I'll file my report the following week. Following week. I will actually, we'll do the voice the following week because you were going yeah. to the West Island. 
that's right. Yeah. That's right. So we'll do the voice the following week. I've actually got um, Tane sitting in for Marty next week. So young Tane. So Tane and I will, will chew the issues then. As I said, if you've got feedback, 2057 is the number. And I will catch, you'll catch Marty, Marty on Friday and then back with me in a couple of weeks. Have a great week. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. The Woke Word of the Week is where we look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often deployed by those in critical social justice. Today's Word of the Week, bonus hole. Classic definition, the vagina of a trans man. However, from the Daily Mail UK this month, a cancer charity has been accused of dehumanising women after advising medics to refer to the vagina as a bonus hole to avoid upsetting transgender men. Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust features a glossary on its website detailing the correct language that healthcare professionals should use when dealing with trans men, women who identify as men. As well as bonus hole, it also suggests the term front hole as an alternative to vagina the use of which it claimed had left patients feeling hurt and distressed. Women's rights campaigners last night rounded on Joe's, the UK's only charity dedicated to women affected by cervical cancer. Bev Johnson of the LGB Alliance said, disgusting language like this, which intentionally dehumanises, must be rejected by all reasonable people. The fact is, women have vaginas, and it's appalling that anyone would think that reality is offensive. If you think it's offensive, then that's your problem. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep your feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, send your comment to 2057. Remember, if you like the great content we bring you each week, please feel free to donate. We're funded by the people for the people. Just visit realitycheck.radio and click the donate button. Peter Williams is up here next on Reality Check Radio with his ponderings and even more great music. Sticking with Scandinavian DJs, though, this is from the 2013 album True. The song has also been released in a slower, soulful version by its vocalist, Aloe Black. This is Avicii with Wake Me Up. See you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.